This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Hello again, everybody, one and all, and welcome to the fifth episode of Through the Years, the podcast where two daring young gentlemen review every episode of Ring of Honor, every show, show by show, from the beginning. My name, the first daring young gentleman, is Trevor Day, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Matt Feuerstein. Matt, how you doing? I, um, I'm excited to hear every new episode, just to hear the new uh, interesting way you're going to introduce us. Um, I think at one time you told us we were in the prime of our lives, which I, uh, I can't speak That's for over. you. I can't speak That's for over you. Now. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was way over for me, but I, I'm sorry that yours uh, ju- has just recently ended. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm doing all right. I've been a little bit under the weather, so uh, if my voice starts to, starts to get grainy near the end, uh, that's why. Um, but I will make a liberal use of the mute button while I cough and sneeze and sniffle. <laughs> yeah, so everyone that's listening to this, you have to be extra nice to us this week because Matt's doing us a solid and walking wounded here. But for everybody... I guess we should address something. For everyone that's uh, listened to the start of the show, you might have noticed something a little bit different in this episode, and that would be the Place to Be Nation bumper at the start of the show. And I am here to announce that we have, in fact, joined the Place to Be Nation Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network. And so I think before we get to the review, we'll have to do a little bit of a house cleaning, but it'll be quick and painless, I promise, just like doctors tell you, but I won't be lying like a doctor. I think I, I'm uh, fine with you just taking your time, let it let it just wash over us real slow and smooth. Ooh, yeah, it's going to be us uh, moaning like Steve Crino watching a Simply Luscious match for 45 minutes. Uh, <laughs> I like that little moan. <laughs> but, um, um, yeah, so for anyone that's listening to new, um, welcome it's great to have you. I'm, uh, the show is pretty much what we said right off the top, which is we're reviewing every Ring of Honor show from the beginning um, until we get tired of it. And eventually we will have, a, I've been told we will have an archive page on the Place to Be Nation website. But until then, if you go to www.thecubsfan.com or search Through the Years, spelled T-H-R-O-H for Through, on iTunes, you can find the first four episodes. So if you like this podcast and you're wondering when you'll get your next fix, well, there's over 10 hours and four episodes worth of content for you to go back and find. Um, for people who have been already listening, who have the early adopters, you brave, handsome, smart, debonair people, um, the podcast won't be changing. It'll be the same schedule, which is we try and get an episode out every three to four weeks, but sometimes we'll be even later. It's basically whenever we have time and feel like it, but that's kind of the base of where we're going. Um, it'll be the same content. There's no difference. We'll have the little bumper at the top. The only real change will be that we're part of the Place to Be Nation uh, Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network. Well, the biggest change, the biggest change is that so we're... we. Was that oh, sorry. Yeah, well, the biggest change is that we are only allowed to talk about pro wrestling, so no more pop culture illusions in any way, shape, or form. Well, Matt, I don't know if you know this, but uh, the P, the Place to Be Nation Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network is also the sister network of just the Place to Be Nation Network, which has all sorts of podcast talk. So, I mean, pop uh, culture talk. Uh, I screwed up my plugs we, already. We, we, picked, we, picked the wrong, we picked the wrong side of that then. 
Yes. <laughs> now, yeah, we're, now we're stuck talking about pro wrestling only. And how depressing is that? Just kidding. Shh. Just kidding. <laughs> Let's do it so we just talk about pop culture, but try and still review these Ring of Honor shows. Mm-hmm. But, um... Sorry for interrupting you. I had to get no, no problem. in. No, no problem at all. I, la- I just like the sound of my own voice. What can I say? No, uh, I talk way too much on these shows, so it's good for you to... You're going to have to force your way in more. Um... Yeah, the only difference will be we'll be on the Place to Be Nation Pro Wrestling Only podcast feed from now on. We that that'll be our exclusive home for new episodes. So uh, I'm sure we're putting we'll be putting out links to that feed, but that's where where our home will be now. And so people are wondering why we left uh, the Cubs fan at thecubsfan.com. There's no animosity or anything like that. We still love Cubs. Uh, we got the offer, and we just asked Cubs, like, what do you think? If you want, we'll we'll stay because we like being here. But, you know, we're, we're, are you getting anything personally out of this? And Cubs said, you know, not. I'm just helping out my friends do what you want to do. So we thought maybe just going to a network, you know, something that we're both – I know I listen to a ton of place-to-be network shows. I know Matt has listened to uh, Where the Big Boys Play. And, 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 and several others. I'm a fan for sure. No, you just listen to where the big boys play. No, I'm going no. to disparage you. No. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to bury you to put myself over. And I, mean, I, I prob- I've, I've even been on the network before, Hobbs. Yes, you have. That's, Trevor, sorry. It I, doesn't matter either way. We, we had to start our own show just to get me on, but it worked. Um, yeah, yeah um, Cubs is a great guy, and... We just wanted to – I j- was just personally curious, uh, being a fan of this network, to see – obviously, we just do the show for the love of the show. And I think Matt once told me before, and I think he's right on, that if 15 people listened to the show and enjoyed it, that would be enough. But obviously, when you do something, you always want to see if you can get more people enjoying it because it's just fun to see the feedback and fun to know that people are listening. And so on the CubsFan.com, Cubs' Cubs's website nowadays – is basically just a place for his friends. Like, Cubs is a very generous guy, where if you look on his website, there's almost no content nowadays other than when he posts podcasts from his friends. And we should know, there are still a ton of great podcasts on thecubsfan.com. Apart from the first four episodes of Through the Years, there's Joe vs. the World, which inspired a lot of wrestling podcasts. There's um, the Justin Shapiro show, which Justin Shapiro was probably the funniest person to ever talk about wrestling. And I believe Matt has maybe been on that show once or twice. Yeah, and just, a, just, a, just a few minutes of me. <laughs> and that's the only place you'll hear Matt because it's not... Oh, wait, no! I almost forgot. Matt has his own show on thecubsfan.com, which will stay there called List em and Learn. Yeah, nobody's asking for that one. Oh, I'm asking for that one. And in fact, if you listen to the first four episodes of this show on thecubsfan.com and still can't get enough of our combination, we have two episodes of List em and Learn we've done, including a bunch, and Matt's done a whole bunch of other episodes with other people, including non-wrestling topics. So a ton of stuff there. And again, I just want to thank Cubs for everything the show would not exist without Cubs like giving us a home to start off with. Uh, I I just want to note Cubs is I you know 
we've known Cubs for a long time. We used to hang out in the same chat rooms and message boards as him. I'm not like, going to lie. Like almost 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've known Cubs for over half our lives. I'm not going to act like I talk to Cubs very often at all, but he's the kind of nice guy. I'll note that um, when I started my little wrestling blog, which we can plug at the end of the show, Cubs was the guy who reached out to me and, and like gave me suggestions about, you know, maybe you could try moving it here to get more readers. And sorry, Cubs, I've still been too lazy to move all my posts. But I mean, that's the kind of guy Cubs is where, you know, he, he'll be the one guy that reaches out and is like, hey, let me like tell you I like this and I'm going to help out. Just a really nice guy. Yeah, well, and as, as much as he's helped you, I mean, this is the first show I've ever hosted in any way that he did not host on his on his page, you know, because, you know, I started doing any sort of podcasting on Joe versus the world. And then uh, Justin Shapiro show, obviously, I was fairly regular on that. Um, and then my own show at that when it when time came for me to start it, he just pretty much like, you know, no questions asked, asked to put it up like there was not even any like dialogue. It's just like, yeah, hey, yeah, sure. I'll throw it up, set up a feed for you, do everything. So uh, and same thing with this show. You know, as soon as it was done, I was like, hey, we have this new show. Um, here it is. If you want it, if you don't, that's fine. And he was like, no, obviously, uh, I'll put it on the site and start a feed for it. No problem. So he's just, yeah, he's a good, he's a good guy. He's a really good yeah. guy, and we owe a lot to him. And um, you should all go to his website uh, every day. And follow, him on, and follow him on Twitter. And Cubs, if you're ever listening to this, please bring back your reviews of 30 for 30 episodes on your blog because I enjoyed reading those. But um, and but that finally leads us to that's where we were, but where we are now is the place to be nation, and I always cringe sometimes when I hear people plug you know things you know when they have paid promotions on their podcasts, it's always the same four things: it's mattresses, mattresses, um, mail order meals that you prepare at home, stamps, stamps, and. nature box type snack things sometimes even and, like sometimes you're leaving the ads for like underwear like oh yeah me hipster, undies. Oh. Le, like hipster underwear and uh wine hipster wine listen I, I like all sorts of hipster stuff but let's let's enough's enough you know what i mean oh and razors razors that's okay so there's six things uh-huh. but bonobos uh, <laughs> <laughs> we, are um, not, we are not sponsored by bonobos yet uh but Um, the, the thing that, well, that bugs me occasionally is my cynical self will go, you don't really like those things, but I can tell you, I wish you could see my iPod because I really have listened to a ton of place to be nation podcasts over the years. I legit really, really enjoy the the shows there. I listen to everything from between the sheets to, where the big boys play Titans to of wrestling, Titans wrestling of Super wrestling show, which I've been on. Thank you for that. Um, all sorts of great stuff. The all Japan excite series. Um, they were doing an ECW review show for a long time. Yeah. I mean, and if you, if, if for some reason you're coming over to us and you've never listened to the place to be nation podcast network, they cover so many different kinds of wrestling there are so many different shows that if you don't find one other show that you like on it you're going to be you're you're a crazy person because there's such a variety of content there there's so many good shows i mean i literally 
there are shows I don't even try because I just don't have time to listen to them. And I do listen to a lot of podcasts. And it's really, it's really, really cool that we were even asked to be part of this feed. Yeah, and when it's sh- something I listen. To. Yeah, and Chad, uh, who who uh, who runs the the feed and asked us to be part of it, um, just like an all around really nice good guy and super knowledgeable and passionate about wrestling so um it's another uh reason why we uh, were excited to join uh just him alone it's just yeah i mean just again just so flattering and we look forward to being here for a good long time and i think the way i'm gonna try and plug things here is every uh episode i think i'm going to try and spotlight a different podcast i've enjoyed on the network and I think I'll start off with, off the top of my head, Exile on Bad Street, hosted by Chris Zellner, is a really good show with different topics every episode. And my, some of my favorite wrestling podcasts of all time was early on, he did a three-part series with uh, Dylan Hales and David Bixon's band about the fall of Bill Watts' UWF promotion. And then uh, there was two. there was one episode about that, and then two episodes about kind of the latter days of the NW Crockett NWA before it was bought by Ted Turner. And it is one of the best, most exhaustive kind of podcast you'll ever hear about a two or three year period, a short period that doesn't really get that much coverage. It's not as sexy as other periods, but I found it super engrossing. So if I could recommend one thing to listen to after us, always after us, um, that would be the one I would re- recommend this time. Um, yeah, and I've really been enjoying the um, the new series, Letters from Center Stage, where it's kind of um, some old school uh, WCW uh, related topics. Um, just a short, hour long, concise show. Really been enjoying that. That's uh, that's one of the new things on the uh, on the network. And I guess we're even newer. So go us. We're the newest. We're the sparkliest. As of, right, adds show. as of right now, we are literally the newest because as we record this, we're not even on the network yet. So <laughs> couldn't be newer. So that's all out of the way. Now we'll have plugs at the end if you want to know how to contact us. But now we're going to sing for our supper and review the fifth show in Ring of Honor history. And that is Crowning a Champion, which took place on July 27, 2002 at the Murphy Rec Center in Philadelphia. It was apparently another uh, sellout of 475 people. Um, Dave Meltzer in The Observer noted that while the atmosphere is great and they are packing the shows monthly, so many people come from long distances to this show and it took a late walk up to sell it out. So it's a, it's a little interesting that he even was given that information. But yeah, it's weird. Yeah, like... I don't know why Gabe or somebody would tell him that, but it's about, you know, it's on the high-ish end of what they had been drawing, you know, in the 400s. And the only other note I will bring up before we actually review the show proper is, is um, at this point in The Observer, I was reading, Ring of Honor starts their television show that we mentioned last on the last episode that they announced that they were getting local television on Philly on Channel 48 in Philadelphia in a Tuesday midnight time slot on uh, September 3rd, Sapolsky said they are also debating about buildings. They believe they are packing their current building without TV, but concede a move to the ECW arena a few blocks away would require papering to pack. 
ECW papered that building more than all but a few were allowed to know, except for its on its biggest shows. And there are already three promotions running ECW Arena, says Dave. So it's a little bit interesting that they were already talking about maybe expanding to a bigger building in their home base city. Um, obviously, they wouldn't run ECW Arena for a long time, and they would stay in the Murphy Rec Center. But... I was, the, th- the thing I thought that was most interesting about interesting about this was just Dave mentioning that the ECW arena had to be papered heavily for um, a lot of old ECW shows, which I never really knew. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. It's not surprising because I mean I think for you know for, especially for early ECW before they were on TV, it's hard to draw a thousand people to a building, you know, for anything. Um, you know, and that's about how much the ECW arena held, if I'm um, if I'm thinking correctly, right? About a thousand, nine hundred, a thousand. Um, does that sound right to you? Yeah, that sounds right to me. I mean, I'm horrible with numbers, but and guesstimating arena sizes, but yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, so I mean, that's not easy to do, and you know, they were ECW. You know, had a lot of buzz, but it's not like your average person who watched WWF TV in early 1995 would have have any other any way of knowing about ECW yeah um and obviously <clears throat> sorry um for all these plans you know they did not Gabe did not expand past ECW arena something we will get into in future shows is kind of a bit of arena and turf war among the Philly independent promotions in 2002 that isn't quite yet upon us but i thought that was just a little interesting tidbit of background but now to stop, start the show proper, we open uh, with Low Key once again. This is the second straight show we st- open with Low Key. And he's in the empty Murphy Rec Center before the show. They're just setting it up. And he just cuts a quick promo where he, uh, he recaps everything he's done in Ring of Honor thus far. It's almost, it feels like almost there to reintroduce you if you haven't watched the Ring of Honor DVDs before. He goes through all his matches and then he fits in both of his terrible, terrible catchphrase, catchphrases, which are, it's not the size of the fighter, but the size of the fight he will bring. And all you can do is be ready. And he put them both together very quickly, which emphasized how cringy they are. This was just a basic, short little segment. Yeah, um... It, it, it was funny that he said, the only way you will win the ROH championship is over my dead body. He said that to Daniels. And uh, Daniel, I mean, and Loki uh, was not dead when Christopher Daniels won the Ring of Honor title. So Yeah, but he's an impact. So, he, so, his, soul, mm. so he, his soul is dead. I, I understand what you're saying. Uh, but, not, but not his body. Just saying. Just saying. <laughs> Let's be technical. Impact's, impact's not even that bad nowadays. I mean, it's not great, but it's not bad. I feel bad taking the cheap shot. But... Yeah, um, you could tell watching these early shows, they're really trying to make Loki not just the face of the company, but kind of the baby face voice of the company, which I, I think Loki's great at being Loki, but what Loki is isn't particularly great at exposition and building things up through words. But, you know, it's not the worst thing of all time. And No, it is not um, the worst thing of all time. I'll give it that. That's the incredibly specific cutting in-depth analysis new listeners can come to expect (laughs) from the show, where I will compare all things on if it's the best or worst thing of all time and give no gray area in between. Hmm. So, first segment, not the worst thing of all time. Also not the best. 
Um, then we get the usual techno music video highlighting the, but this time they focus more just on highlighting the four wrestlers in tonight's main event world title match. Much more reasonable. Yeah, and the past episodes where they just highlight everyone's entrances that we <laughs> see later anyway. My favorite part of this is they were using tons of cuts and dissolve effects again. And at one point they dissolve, they do a fade out of a low key moment and they fade in to the exact same lo- low key moment where they left off. Like they literally just stuck a fade out and fade in just to stick one in. I really also enjoyed the uh, question mark graphic. Uh, that was uh, very prevalent on the screen. They really, they really were great with these graphics. I, I'm telling you. Yeah, that made me feel like I was watching the old '60s Batman show. I was about to hear the Riddler cackle or something. <laughs> but um, next segment we get is we get a slow camera pan backstage up simply Luscious's body because that's letting us know that Ring of Honor is all about the wrestling. Well, it's all, and, it's, it's all about doing what ECW did. <laughs> Yeah, and um, she's backstage with Steve Carino, and Carino cuts a promo where he talks about how he and Simply Luscious are together now, which is following up last episode that ended with them being (gasps) caught making out behind a dumpster. Evil kissing. (laughs) And evil laughing. And this time, Carino just says, you know, hey, we're together. He acknowledges Simply Luscious is with Steve... I mean, with um, the prophecy, but that's business, and they're personal. And then he asks her a few questions. He uh, asks her who the best announcer is, and she says Carino. So we know she's a faker at one thing. Um, He asks her who the best kisser is, and she says Carino. And then he asks her who the best professional wrestler in the world is, and she says Christopher Daniels. And Steve does a good job of quickly shaking this off, but... Obviously, seeds are being planted. Dun, dun, dun. And the thing I got watching this is every time I watch Simply Luscious in these early segments, I just think back to that early Observer thing I read where people in Ring of Honor were raving about Simply Luscious and her potential. And even listening to like a, a Steve Cree, no, a Christopher Daniels shoot interview, I heard him say, you know, when talking about Simply Luscious joined, that, you know, Ring of Honor saw a lot of potential in Simply Luscious in that first year. And I just, every time I watch her uh, in the ring, on the mic, I, she's not the worst thing ever, as always. I'm grading on the not worst ever scale. But I don't yet see what made them absolutely go nuts over her. I mean, maybe just standards were lower for what they expected from women in 2002 because of what WWF had done as far as portraying women over the previous like four years or so and the way ECW had uh, kind of promoted its women just as kind of like pinup dolls basically who just pulled each other's hair and rolled around so that could have something to do with it maybe it's because she was an actual like rest like wanted to be trained to be a wrestler that's the only thing I could think of. Just like the the standards, it's very hard to even see 2002 women's wrestling standards through 2017 eyes. Yeah, it just she's not the worst promo ever. There, keep grading on that scale, but she's she's not completely wooden, but not particularly great at it. And the one short match we've seen so far, we saw her screw up a body slam bump a few times. So 
yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm not going to pass final judgment yet, but every because of those quotes, every time I see her do something, I'm kind of really examining it, maybe, maybe too much. But our next little quick backstage segment is the Christopher Street Connection, our backstage eating bananas. So we're getting banana continuity from the last episode where they were doing banana-based segments. And you see, they, you see, you see, Trevor. It's because bananas are shaped like a penis. What? Is, yes. is that what one looks like? Yeah. So. Um, oh. Yeah. So they. Um, well, I wouldn't go so far as say it's what one looks like, but um, it's. Uh, see, these characters, they're, uh, they're, they're. I don't know if you've noticed, but they're portrayed as almost uh, homosexual esque. And Wait. So they're, what? They're interested in penises, I guess, is the thing. So bananas are like a, a motif. So they just like carrying bananas in their hands and offering them to people. So that's what they want to do with penises, right? Yeah, they want to carry them in their hands and offer them to people, peel them, eat them for a yeah. snack. <laughs> a snack. But they they hear um, some blaring techno music from a, a closed door in locker room, and they open it up to find that Brian Excel and our first on-camera appearances of Dixie and Izzy, and they're having doing techno raver stuff. And the Christopher Street connection gets something thrown at them. Dixie asks them if they have VIP passes. Excel says that they don't want their kind in there. And for those people who are thinking, "Ooh, that's kind of a homophobic comment," and if you haven't listened. To one of the first episodes of our show, this is like a breath of fresh air compared to how they treated the Christopher Street Connection on earlier episodes. Anyway, the door gets slammed in the Christopher Street Connection's face, and this is the on-camera debut of Special K. Yeah, I, I, I have to say, I totally marked out when I saw Izzy and Dixie. Like, I was like, oh, it's like the, a new era is dawning. Like, this is like the Ring of Honor that like I got really into was the one, not that I Special K was like my my go-to, but they're just, they're, they're a, um, they marked a time in ROH that I remember fondly, if that makes sense. Yeah, they, they're they a goofy, fun gimmick for goofy, fun, flippy guys, and I mean, I thought Dixie was actually a good wrestler, but we'll get into that later, down the road, or through the years, wink, but yeah, just int- introducing us, you know, Brian XL last time said he'd find some new people that would have his back, and so... That's the seed of that's the the initial you know reason Special K comes to be. So and then we finally get one last quick little segment where Tony Mamaluke is uh, backstage with James Maritato, and he's asking James yet again, does he have any more of those green FBI shirts? And this gives Maritato the chance to get angry and yet again tell Mamaluke that the FBI is done. And at this point, the natural-born sinners come in, and Boogaloo asks Maritato if he can ask him some questions about shoot fighting. Maritato seems like he's willing to do so. When Mamaluke has to be a big old jerk and interrupt, he says the only shooting the sinners do is getting someone in a dark alley and, quote, putting it to them real good, unquote. Homicide says the only shooting they do is in the ring, which made me groan. And then the Sinners challenge Mamaluke and Maritato to a match at the next show in Boston. And uh, I don't know if like that there was there was that comment, but 
I know Mama Luke made some sort of like fairly racist comment. I, I, I didn't write it down word for word, but something about that segment was like, hey, this is not so cool. Yeah, it, it had the vibe of, you know, I think he was just trying to lean into the FBI Italian stereotype or something, but that kind of, hey, what are these? I mean, it was almost a little bit racist, Andrew Dice Clay-ish, like, put it to him real good, hey. And, um, but yeah, it, it's just continuing, this, it's setting up a match for the next show, and it's it's continuing the little story they're having of Mama Luke won't let go of the FBI gimmick, but Maritato really wants him to. And one thing you'll notice on this show is for the first time, well, they started doing it on the last show, but they're really doing it here. Ring of Honor, since they're expanding a little bit, is promoting two shows now. They're promoting matches for the next show in Boston and then for the show after that, which will be a return to Philly. So, you know, it's interesting to see Ring of Honor at this point doing more promotion for future shows than most indies nowadays do, thinking two shows ahead. Yeah, it's true. And actually, something that was one of the better things about this era of ROH is that they were, like, planning, yeah, planning a couple of shows ahead, and it just, things didn't seem quite so um, in a vacuum as they yeah. do now. Um, I, I will notice that, um, or did notice that, after kind of getting more right to the action of the last show, the road to the title, this, they, they went back to the older format of starting with a bunch of, like, backstage stuff and, like, skits and things like that. So this is, it's kind of like they haven't totally turned a corner on a lot of these uh, little um, vignettes that they've been, that they've been kind of doing. It's, it's just, I know we've talked about this before, but it's interesting just how much silly stuff and promos and angles they have for a promotion that's really trying to promote itself as being the pure wrestling promotion. It's just, it's surprising to me, even after seeing, you know, now this would be the, the fifth show. It's it's still surprising to me just how much they lean on that sort of stuff. And that actually is a great point. I, w- I think I'm going to expand on a little later how this show is kind of a throwback to the first couple shows where you think they might be changing a bit after Road to the Title, but they're back to kind of a lot of backstage segments, a lot of kind of goofy fluff. Maybe not quite as much of the goofiness, but still some. But... I think one thing about this show that that's really interesting is how it's a throwback in the sense of there's one big match. And in fact, reading The Observer at the time, Dave Meltzer noted that the show was built on purpose to, to build to one big match and to have nothing else kind of um, get in, in that match's way. But yet, like... I thought it was interesting because reading it, Dave talked about how, you know, they booked a lot of short matches and different kinds of segments so that nothing would kind of stand in the way of the main event for being being the show stealer. But the undercard really isn't that much different from the first two shows. Like they didn't not, really have not to at try, all, yeah. They didn't have to try hard to get out of the main event's way. They just had to do what they did the first two shows. Yeah, and I also don't think that's a good strategy of making a show like you could have a great main event and other worthwhile things but anyway yeah we'll get to that as we go through the yeah. show um so we open the show with our first proper match and that's jeremy lopez debuting in ring of honor versus tony mamaluke and tony mamaluke be- defeats jeremy lopez by submission with um i think it's some kind of butterfly lock i couldn't quite 
grasp what the submission was, but in seven minutes, 22 seconds. So for people who don't know who Jeremy Lopez is, which is understandable, he was a Dean Malenko trainee. He had a couple kind of, he had a couple dark matches and Saturday night, WCW Saturday night matches in 99 and 2000. He's probably best known for, he was a regular with Osaka pro for a little while, which is, um, Super Delphin's kind of Mishinoku Pro offshoot promotion in Japan in the 2000s. He uh, worked a little bit in All Japan. He worked a bit in NWA Wildside. Not uh, really super well known, but one thing I thought that was interesting that the Observer mentioned, which was that, quote, Gabe Booker Gabe Sapolsky was really impressed with Jeremy Lopez as a good wrestler, but no look. And they may put him in a tag team with James Maritato. So I'll note that they never put Lopez in a tag team with Maritato. He only got, I would say, two or three more matches in Ring of Honor. And I also don't think he has a bad look. Uh, he, he doesn't look... He looks like a standard middle-of-the-road wrestler. He's not old. He's He's not ugly. He's not super handsome. He's not unfit, but he's not super cut he just but he wasn't I don't, like, he wasn't like flabby either yeah yeah I, I don't get this idea of he he's a good wrestler with a no look he just he just is a generic looking pro wrestler he looks better honestly than some other people on the roster yeah for sure but right. this match is a perfectly in my opinion a perfectly fine wrestling match um Mama Luke does his usual thing where he does, he'll go for a lot of submissions throughout the match, but he kind of mixes in more higher impact spots throughout. Uh, Lopez shows off he, he, that he can hit a tiger driver. He, he, uh, they, they trade tornado DDTs, but really it's just a, it, it's, it's a TV ish match. It's, it's seven minutes, you know, there's, there's not a time to say about it. Matt, did you have any thoughts? No, I mean, the, the finish I thought was cool, like Mama Luke, you know, the double underhook implant DDT and then turned it right into a choke. But no, there's not the match itself was, I mean, it really was like, not, there was nothing to it. But uh, the one noteworthy thing was, inexplicably, there was no commentary on the match. Um, oh, I, com- I completely forgot. Thank you. Yeah, for some reason on this show, the first match has no commentary. And the commentary kicks in for match two. They make no reference to the fact that match one had no commentary. So I don't know if this was a failure that happened later in post-production. And for the whole show, Donnie B sounds fine. And Steve Carino sounds like he's talking through a telephone. Yeah, or like an intercom or something. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah there's obviously some sort of technical glitch with the recording. And I guess the ROH decided, like, well, this isn't really worth re-recording and it's not really worth addressing because not enough people are going to care and they were right i mean no one cares like so it's might as well do not you know just not worry about it because it doesn't really matter in the in the grand scheme of things people people bought this uh this dvd or tape for the main event pretty much right so so as long as everything worked out fine for that it didn't really matter. Um, it was actually sort of refreshing to watch an ROH match without the motor mouth uh, stuff that was going on in all the other <laughs> matches. I'm serious, like because it's not just like that. The com it's not that the commentary was bad. 
even even more so was that the commentary was like non-stop talking. All the ROH shows so far have been like that. And it was nice to see a match where just like you could sort of feel the vibe, hear the crowd, you know, just breathe a little bit. And I think one thing that's interesting that I remember at the time a lot of uh, Ring of Honor fans on the message boards were calling were calling for was they wanted an option to turn the commentary off, even a year or two later. And I think the only major promotion that did that was PWG. I don't know. I don't see how hard it could be to offer just a, a raw audio feed of it. Maybe it's harder than I'm assuming, but... Well, when VHS was, like, the main source, that would have been hard, I would say, because you'd have to make, like, multiple tapes. Oh, yeah, but I don't know when this... I don't know when Ring of Honor started shifting to DVD, but uh, shows like this make you wonder, you know, would, would, it would have been nice if we could have got a raw audio feed so we didn't always have to suffer through Donnie B. But going back to the match, again, uh... I almost feel like I didn't do it justice, but really there's nothing to do justice to. Yeah, I mean... Average seven-minute match. It was just a match. Like, it really was. It was, like, just a match. And there's a lot of matches like that. They're just they're just there to be there. Um, you know, I, I, don't know, I don't know what to say. But one, one thing that I will note is this is the debut of the Ring of Honor Japanese-style long turnbuckle pads. And as opposed to, like, a turnbuckle pad on each turnbuckle, it's one pad covering all three turnbuckles that that's vertical and they debuted that here and they kept it until late 2005 when they went back to the triple turnbuckle and i and i thought that when i first started watching roh and like that was a thing i always you know it's just something that made it stand out because the other major promotions in the u.s that i had watched all my life never had anything like that yeah i, I think anything that differentiates yourself is nice and it's just also a sign that Ring of Honor is kind of tinkering and putting a little bit of money, you know. I mean, I'm sure I don't know how much those cost, but you know, they're they're keep they're going to keep making little adjustments on shows as things progress. They're not going to be locked in amber or anything. So, yeah, that's a, that's interesting to point out and that may actually come into play a little bit later. But right now, we get another backstage segment and Quiet Storm is in the locker room and they're uh, he's running down the hit squad to Chris Devine, um, which is just continuing his mic work on them on the last show. The Christopher Street Connection come in and offer them bananas. They react with anger and not appreciation for said bananas. The Christopher Street Connection then do kind of a tattletale schoolboy type thing where they're like, we know who Brian Excel is hanging out with and we won't tell you who. And what made me laugh is Quiet Storm's response is just to be like, we don't care who Brian XL is hanging out with, yeah. which I, I just love the idea that everybody hates Brian XL. Like they don't even care what he's doing. Yeah, that is the gimmick pretty much. And uh, that again, just little quick segments and that jumps us straight to our second match, which is Christian York and Joey Matthews taking on Bro Prince Nana and Jacob Ladder. Although I will note here that the on-screen graphic Ring of Honor puts up says Jacob's Ladder. But every website I've looked at says Jacob Ladder. So I'm going to assume that Ring of Honor screwed that up then, and I'm not screwing it up now. Did the commentary... I think the commentary called him Jacob's Ladder too, right? Yeah, well, I, I think they must have just seen the graphic. But like when I go to cage match or reviews or just look at this, the rest of this guy's meager career, 
he's Jacob Ladder, not Jacob's Ladder. So, well, that's that shows how much respect they had for this guy that they didn't bother to even <laughs> ask him what his name was. I believe he was another TWA student on this show. He is just filling in the role of Prince Donna's latest lackey. Um, York and Matthews beat Nana and Jacob Ladder. When York pins Ladder after the York and Matthews did some kind of Samoan drop, top rope, leg drop combo, this match only goes 1 minute 45 seconds. The shortest ladder match I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, and it's also... Maybe the worst ladder match I've ever seen. So, yeah, so if, I can yeah, finally. I can say the worst for once. Finally, no more gray areas. No more half measures, Walt. Uh-huh. Um, the on-screen graphic. Oh, yeah, I already said that. I'll note that when Nana comes out, he's still getting low-key killed you chance. So from the last month's angle where low-key knocked him out or apparently storyline-wise knocked him out, Nana's getting some Nana sucks chance. Nana gets on the mic and explains that since he got knocked out last month, the Philadelphia Pencil—I mean, the Pennsylvania State Athletic Commission—has ordered that no one hits Nana in the head, and that turns out to be the story of the match, because at some point Nana gets hit with a double insiguri. He walks out. York and Matthews then beat on ladder very quickly, two on one, and the match ends. the The most notable thing about this match is something I haven't mentioned yet: is not anything that happens in the match. It's that Alexis Laurie makes her Ring of Honor debut as York and Matthews' manager. And for those who don't know who Alexis Laurie is, she would go on to greater fame as Mickey James in WWE. Yeah. Um, you know, and she, they, they, they kind of put her over pretty good on commentary. But, um, but yeah, it's funny, just like fairly inauspicious debut, just, you know, like they did with the women back then. They're just like, they just show up in some dude's corner. And that's that's pretty much how Alexa Suri debuted, um, and they pretty they pretty quickly um, on commentary um, made sure to note that Nana was lying about his head injury, and that he, um, you know, he was kind of doing the Bob Orton thing, where um, you know Bob Orton wore the cast and milked an arm injury for way longer than he was actually hurt. So um, so that's pretty much the story of this match. Yeah, again, I don't know why they're doing these these one to two minute Prince Nana and goofball matches. I don't know what they think add to the show. They're not even, I mean, people, Nana is over for being Prince Nana, but what they actually do in these matches and segments aren't, I don't think, particularly add any entertainment value at all, really. But there's there's no point even going more into that. The cameras at this point, after the match, they follow Prince Nana backstage where the Christopher Street Connection are waiting to comfort him. So at this point in the show, the Christopher Street Connection are kind of like the through line of the show. They're, they're weaved throughout the tapestry of this show up to this point. Yeah, that's, I, I'm never going to get over the fact that like the whole purpose of supposedly bringing them out at the beginning was to show them that they are what ROH is not. And now like they probably have more screen time than anyone except for the main eventers on the first five shows. And I want to bring up something that, that reminds me. Someone emailed us a quote from a shoot interview Gabe Sapolsky did with uh, Kevin Steen back when Kevin Steen had his Kevin Steen show series on High Spots. And something Kevin Steen asked him is if uh, Gabe had any regrets on the first Ring of Honor show. And Gabe, in fact, did say that his regret was starting the show with the Christopher Street connection, that he thought it was too much gimmick for what they were trying to accomplish. But the funny thing was, 
that wasn't a one-show mistake, as you just mentioned. That was something, if anything, their presence grows on shows like this. The presence has steadily grown um, to where they are, again, one of the top acts, like one of the most featured acts in the company, uh, I'd say easily. And, you know, apart from the rampant homophobia that they provoke from Ring of Honor, um, they're, they're a fun act, but again, just completely diametrically opposite to what the company purported to be at this time. Look at me using big words. Yeah. Um, nothing wrong with using the Christopher Street connection if you're not going to be all grossly homophobic about it. Um, but they were, so there was something wrong with it. Yeah, like this segment continues the theme of Christopher Street connection, try and comfort Nana, you know blah 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 you know ooh gay people they want to have sex with them ooh and um i'm just trying to, i'm trying to find where my notes what even happened at the end of this segment that's how memorable it was well um well i can uh, help you out so um they check on nana nana just tell them to stay away and they just they enter the ring Oh, yeah, and the they, camera they, follows them back. Yeah. yeah, they walk right out, and the announcers do the same thing where they're all grossed out because Buffy's kissing fans. And, um, and it's funny because the fans are really into them, as, as usual. They're kissing them on the lips. They're chanting NYC for them. You know, they're not being ridiculous about it, but the announcers are like, oh, what language was that, gamies? Like, just like, <laughs> like, just like such like baby stuff. I will say, I'll give, I'll give Carino credit for this. So Buffy gets on the mic. York and Matthews and Larry are still there. And Buffy says that he finds that they find York and Matthews attractive. And Carino's like, oh, it's probably Matthews. Matthews is cute. And I appreciated that line. I think that's uh, <laughs> that goes a long way uh, to uh, you know, less lessening the homophobic tension a little bit, in my like, opinion. Th- there was still homophobia here. I mean, they still went ew when they uh, they kissed a fan. Right, it's a lot of that gay knees, all that stuff. It's there were still it's comments nice. about fruits, you know. Yeah. But this is how crazy bad the homophobia in the first show or two was. This comes like a breath of fresh air compared to then, which is is horrible. But it's 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 a step way up from the first couple shows. They're not acting with the vitriol and anger again. It's continuing to get notched down a bit. They're not being treated as like these guys have to get off the show right now. We hate them. Uh, Carino notes that ten uh, percent of the population is said to be gay, and of course he uses that just to make a cheap joke about how Donnie B's brother Nova is gay, but the way he framed it, it made it sound like that he thought every family had 10 people in the family because it was, he was using, he was transitioning from the 10% comment to that. Um, but yeah, the segment, the twist of the segment is, Ooh, you know, we're attracted to you, but it's actually Christopher street connections, manager, Allison danger who's attracted to Alexis Laurie and, since it's a ring of honor, what happens is this makes Alexis Lurie violently angry and we get a big six way brawl. And I don't know if this counts on our streak of misogynistic violence, but Oh, I think it does. They they end up holding Lurie for danger to spank. And if this counts, all five shows have had some kind of weird violence on women segment or we're going to spank them in public segment. Oh, but so, I, it's worse than that. Um, so when, uh, when Danger says she knows Lurie has the hots for her, Lurie punches Danger. And the next thing that happens is that Mace 
punches Larie in the face. <laughs> oh my and, god! I... And and that's like you know it's bad enough when like wrestlers do wrestling moves to, when male wrestlers do wrestling moves to small women, like that's bad enough. But at least there's like an element of absurdity to that. Like people don't do wrestling moves in real life. Like people do punch each other in the face, and there's something slightly more disturbing about a male wrestler punching a woman in the face than even just like a male wrestler doing like a like a a pile driver, you know, on a woman. Yeah, and the thing I thought was also a little cringe I don't even know if cringy or funny or sad or all three where during the six person brawl, I think Credo was like, is this gay bashing? And I thought You've been literally, this company has literally been doing gay bashing in every sense of the word on the first few shows. So to make this joke like, oh, is this gay bashing now? Like, we don't want to get in trouble. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, like now you're going to be coy. Uh, Just, it's just such a weird, but again, it's a sign of how much they've already changed in five episodes. Yeah, that's true. That, That nothing will top how creepy that first one, that first segment was. Like, it's still, it's just like, you know, as bad as it is now, like in the, at this point, just completely inexplicable, like what was going on at that first ROH show. Yeah, I'm, I mean, if people who haven't listened before, we go into the first segment of the first show extensively, and that is just, it, it is one of the craziest segments I've ever seen in for a lot of sad reasons. But again, so this wasn't a great segment. And, and, and if anyone who listens is like, why aren't they just letting this go? Like, we get it. It's homophobic. But it's like, why should you let this go? It's not, like, it's not okay. And they've been doing it repeatedly. Like I said, it's getting slightly better. It's still not okay, though. Yeah. And it, it, it's good to see that's getting better, but it's still not where it should be. But it's not even a great segment. But again, I, I, I feel weird watching these segments. I'm so beaten down by the first couple show segments that I almost appreciate when it's just not as terrible. And next we get a little segment where um, a van pulls up and some Texas Wrestling Academy students get out, including our first appearance of Don Juan. I think we also see Jacob Ladder or Jacob's Ladder. Again, I ring of honor. You're, you're crazy. Uh, Don Juan, I love, he has to make a comment where he goes, hey, you guys told me this drive was 26 hours. It was only 25. And I love, again, Ring of Honor, almost every show has to reference that the drive for these TWA students from San Antonio to Philly is 26 hours. And Rudy, I love boy, that has they made, just, Rudy boy has made the drive every single time. Yeah, I, I just love that they have to bring it up every time. It's part of, um, it's part of Rudy Boy's contract. He's like, you got to let people know how long I traveled for. <laughs> and Michael Shane starts acting arrogant and he tells Don Juan to get his bags Biohazard who was also in the van wonders to Rudy Boy why Shane has to be so cocky Rudy Boy tells him that's just the way Shane is and did you you notice that they parallel parked on the curb no I I did not because I noticed it right away oh these these goddamn kids today actually I don't even know who was driving the van that might have been Rudy Boy but um yeah, so this is the first the first few shows they didn't really give Michael Shane a character, but if anything, I felt like he was a little face faceish com- by comparison at least to Spanky being obnoxious, but 
obviously on this show, they're completely changing that around and starting to give Michael Shane an obvious arrogant heel character. Yeah, this is, I think, the official Michael Shane heel turn. They weren't totally clear about it, like you said before, but now they are. And that leads us into our next match, which is Paul London and Don Juan taking on Michael Shane and Biohazard in another TWA students match. And Michael Shane and Biohazard win, with Shane scoring the fall after he pins Don Juan after Enziguri. Now, Paul London, the controversy in this match, oh, and this was an 829, but the controversy in the match is Paul London also had a pin on Biohazard at the same time. The ref counts three and awards the match to Michael Shane. Why this is important is, much like the first TWA students tag on the first show, the, the step for this match is the same, which is whoever wins the fall gets an official Ring of Honor contract, which means they don't have to drive in the van anymore. They get plane tickets. So the idea of why, why is it a big deal even who gets the pin apart just from what looks like a meaningless match, it's to get that plane, that sweet, sweet plane ticket. So the match itself is... Um, Matt, you want to actually start with this one? I've been monopolizing the mic too much. Yeah, I mean... You know, like it's like what I've been saying. There's just, there's not a lot to it. I mean, you know, whenever um, um, Don Juan and Biohazard are in, they very quickly go back to London versus Shane because London versus Shane are good, and the other guys are still pretty green. Um, short hit, sh- very short heat segment on Don Juan goes right to the hot tag to London. Um, I think this is the debut of the drop salt, where. Um, London uh, drop kick Shane and um, Moonsault's Biohazard. I think this is, that's, this is the ROH debut of that move. Um, but um, at one point, uh, Donnie B calls London's Moonsault a back suplex Moonsault. Oh. I love how he throws in suplex. I think that's so fun. Isn't it fun? Two shows ago, he did that with AJ Styles. And I thought that was just him not knowing the name of the spiral tap. So he threw in words just because he panicked. But no, he does it again. He puts back suplex into the name of just random flying moves. Yeah. I don't know why he does this. It's it's his calling card. Everything is a suplex. Um, That's a bad card. Yeah, well, <laughs> get him a new card. I don't know what to tell you. Um, but... Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's like another one of those things where like the guys look okay, but the match is not not much. Uh, it's just it's short. There's not much to it. It's fine. It you know it's mostly to set up this angle where he leads to like kind of the more of the London versus Shane feud, which I guess is really starting pretty much here. You know, they sort of alluded to it in earlier shows, but really this is the start of the feud proper of London versus Shane, um, and. Uh, yeah, um, Michael Shane gets the gets the contract. There's a you screwed London chant, so I guess uh, I guess it got over. Um, and then Shane cuts a promo in the ring. He calls himself the showstopper. London interrupts, and London is not quite good on commentary yet. He's like, "Oh, how are you, the showstopper? I do the most outstanding moves." literally. He says he says that it's a slap in his face. Um, to to have someone call themselves the showstopper when he does such such showstopping moves, and which that prompts Shane to literally slap London, we get a pull apart brawl with refs and Rudy Boy and Biohazard and Don Juan holding them back. But that's the angle at the end of the match. But 
a few thoughts about the match itself from my end. I thought this match was perfectly average. It was the best, obviously, when Shane and London were in. I, I was struck by how over London was already getting for someone that came in as an unknown. I, I do I do think you're right that this was the first time the drop salt was in Ring of Honor. I think he had done the straight flipping clothesline drop salt before, but the idea of actually doing it in a tag match where he's flipping off the drop kick onto another person, I don't think it had ever been done like that before. I, you can hear a TWA chant during this match, which I thought was impressive. And you can hear the fans are already getting behind London and no watching London. One thing I really noticed about him here is Wrestlers work differently when they have no fear. And Paul London is a guy at this point in his career, he had no fear. You can tell on every bump, he's trying to get every little rotation he can of it. Like, there's moves where he's rotating it and cutting it so close where he's about to land on his head. He, he's taking suplexes huge. He's a guy who, at this point in his career, he's as compelling to watch taking bumps as doing his cool offense because he just seems like he's going to put his all into every single motion he makes. And even if that means risking his health, everyone else, I don't think anyone looked terrible. Obviously Michael Shane and London are more polished. I think biohazard continued to show off that he has good athleticism for a guy, his height, but not a complete worker, but I think he did a springboard moonsault in here. He, Again, did the Mr. Perfect jumping neck snap. Don Juan, you didn't really notice him much. He didn't really screw anything up, but he didn't look special. He just looked like a student. But again, average match, but I in I enjoyed watching Paul London be Paul London here. I think Paul London, I mean, I knew before, but he really is the first guy that feels like he's a Ring of Honor homegrown star. He is building his name in Ring of Honor. He's not someone that already had a bit of a name somewhere else. Yeah, you don't hear about too many pre-ROH, like, big-time Paul London matches, do you? No, and you can feel the momentum starting to build. I mean, I think we mentioned on, on another show, but I think he's becoming what they wanted Spanky to be for them. You know, he's the TWA student that's not American Dragon. That's going to be the guy they can push to the top of the card. Right, and, you know... I don't like judging wrestlers based on their like their bodies and all that stuff. I don't think it's the best way to do it. But when you see these TWA guys, it's like just by looking at them, like you can tell, you know, who are the ones that are serious and who are the ones that aren't. Because like the guys like Spanky, like Dragon, like London, like Shane, like they're just in much better athletic shape. You know, like they they just clearly take the whole thing more seriously. Like that they're working so hard, even besides just in the matches to just to be these top-level athletes. And Biohazard, you know, Don Juan, you know, they're not bad, but they don't do that. They, they look much more like indie wrestlers. Yeah. I, it, it is crazy when you watch these TWA student matches how big a gulf there is between the, the, the good and the bad. I mean, I'm not even that these guys are bad, but just I guess this is not uncommon for wrestling schools, but the guys they had that were good were so good. You know, Dragon and London and Spanky and even Shane was pretty damn polished for his his experience level, I would say, probably. Yeah, Shane was good. I mean, he was certainly, like, good. Like, I don't, he, and, and, then these, and then these other guys, you know, which are just feel like they could have come from any wrestling school. 
and it's crazy where these matches they never have enough guys where you don't see some some of both camps you always see both and like you mentioned i'm sure a lot of these guys got bookings because rudy boy was like all right you know what we'll make the drive we'll bring all these guys out but you need to give these other guys a shot too which is what a trainer should be doing so there's nothing wrong with that but yeah it, it makes the difference very stark I mean, that had to be the reason Jacob Ladder was on the show. It was probably literally, you know, Jacob will make the drive. Could you do anything for him? You know, you can wrestle an under-two-minute match with Prince Nana and take a few bumps. Which, I don't know. If I, I mean, I guess in wrestling, you have to show that dedication to start with. Uh, the one last thing I'll, I'll put on this match, which, again, average match, but interesting to see Paul London work hard, is... Yet again, I think this gimmick is stupid, where it's a tag match where only the winner of the fall gets the contract. But the thing this match does better than the first time they did this match on the first show was this time partners are actually breaking up their partner's falls. Which is, you know, if you're going to have a match with this dumb stip, at least work to the stip, which is you wouldn't want anyone winning, even your partner. You, You want it for yourself, you know, at one point especially... Don Juan and Paul London get into it because Paul London breaks up Don Juan scoring a pin. But that's that's what what you would do, you know, in one of these matches. So at least the first time they did one of these matches, no one acted that way. They just wrestled a straight-up tag. This time, at least, they kind of thought on their feet a bit and worked to the stip. Another reason that Paul London was better than Spanky at the time. <laughs> he stole the pin. Yeah. That's... And... Yeah, so we get the little post-match segment with the pull apart. We're building up to that they're all going to be fighting Spanky, London, and Shane over the showstopper name because nothing is going to make these guys look better than fighting over their Shiner Shawn Michaels nickname. That's uh, Again, I feel bad for Michael Shane especially here because he's the cousin or nephew or, or whatever of Shawn Michaels. And he's, in this match, he's doing the top rope elbow and the super kick. And I just feel like you really should not be leaning into it. You know, it does a disservice to you when you're forcing those comparisons. You know, yeah. well, even just the name Michael Shane, right? His name is Matt Bentley, and I think Michael Shane he saw it because that's like a reverse of Shawn Michaels, right? Yeah, it just. I'm not saying Michael Shane ever could have been a big star otherwise, but his best success was not being trying to be my Shawn Michaels, and. Here he's trying to kind of be Shawn Michaels, so yeah. I mean, he was young; he made a bad decision, but I think he eventually kind of figured it out. But of course, you know, it never turned into anything that was like any sort of big star. He had a he had a run in TNA that was not bad though for a little yeah, while. Yeah, the Matt Bentley run was not bad, and, and he had and his he, own he, bounce. Yeah, and even Michael Shane, like before that, he was in the first X uh, Ultimate X match, wasn't he? I'm not. I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure that was it. Was Sabin, Shane, and Frankie Kazarian was the first open uh, Ultimate X match, if I remember correctly. Hmm. I mean, Michael Shane is not bad at all on these shows. It's just, I think it's very rare a guy can imitate his much more famous teacher and not have that un- unfairly kind of do a disservice to him. Yeah, and for sure. So. After the pull apart in the ring, we follow the boys backstage where there's another pull apart between uh, Shane and London. And Rudy finally just tells everybody, um, you know, that he's going to talk to Gabe and going to set up Shane versus London for that show in Boston. 
So we're setting up another ma- We got two more matches set up for the Boston show now with these segments. And next, we're going into the Hit Squad taking on Divine Storm. And the Hit Squad win this match when Mac pins Chris Divine after a powerbomb in 4 minutes, 33 seconds. So slightly closer to a real match than the Hit Squad have had so far. Yeah, this is after Quiet Storm yelled at him on the mic that he hasn't even had a re- they haven't even had a real match. This is probably the closest they've had to what feels like a a real quote unquote match. They've had this. They had to bump and sell a little bit. <laughs> I actually, I was surprised. I actually kind of like this match. I didn't love it, but I think for four and a half minutes they just went out and threw big bomb moves, which you know, when you're getting four and a half minutes, that's probably the best way to go. Is just throw out big giant moves and the hit squad can do that i thought the surprise of the match was chris divine did a lot of power moves he actually threw around um the hit squad which you think of divine storm up to this point as being the mikey whipwreck flippy floppy trainees but chris divine here is death valley driving and spine bustering mafia when mafia is still a big boy and he's hitting a big belly to belly on monster mac when monster mac's an even bigger boy and I think Chris Devine also does this crazy, crazy bump where he's running into the corner and someone sweeps his legs out from under him. And he lands, he basically does a 180-degree rotation and falls right on the back of his head and neck, which was just a crazy-looking bump. Um, you know, it's better than the other Hit Squad stuff, which is them coming in and beating up cartoonish characters and being kind of obnoxious. I would much rather see sub-five-minute matches where they're just hitting fun big moves. Um, one other thing I'll note, though, the kind of weird thing at the end here is the end of the match is Mac hitting Chris Devine with a powerbomb. And for some reason, I don't know if Chris Devine had hurt himself or something, Chris Devine puts both of his hands behind his head like he's relaxing for this powerbomb. He like interlaces his fingers behind his head and for the entire powerbomb and the pin afterwards, he just holds his hands behind his head. I don't know if he was hurt or worried about something or thought that he had invented a bold new counter to a powerbomb where one inch of hand would shield him from the entire impact. I don't know what he was doing, but it was very strange looking. I would suspect that he might have been hurt or afraid that he was hurt. That's that's what makes the most sense to me. Um, I will say though, Divine Storm always look better when they're not in like the, those SAT style of like tumbling matches. Uh, I, I don't think those matches have suited them so far as much as just wrestling more like quote normal wrestlers. Yeah, I would agree that, especially because. I feel like they don't really have a great identity when they're working the other Whipwreck guys because they're not so good at power stuff, even though Divine actually did kind of impress there here. But in general, they're not so good at the power stuff that they can really work as a base for the Reds and the SATs, but they're, they can't really quite compete on the crazy move level of Red and the SATs and Brian XL either. So they're in this weird middle ground where they're just the other guys in those matches. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I will say, match, I know you said you liked it. didn't really do much for me. Just I just don't know how much you could do in four and a half minutes, you know, unless you're, like, amazing. And, you know, these guys, they have their talents, but I don't, wouldn't say, you know, they were the, uh, as you might say, they, I don't, they're not the best wrestlers ever. 
No, no. Oh, that's uh, they're not they're not the worst wrestlers ever though. We, we, but they're we, not the that. best either. Yeah, agreed. But I guess one other thing I'll note is um, I think it was I I forget who if it was Monster Mac or Mafia, where no it's Mafia I think he does one of those big E Langston type moves where he does a big running start to a quiet storm who's staying on the apron and kind of hits him through the ropes. And it's another one of those moves where it seems like almost every time a wrestler does one of those moves where he does a big running lunge at someone through the, through the ropes that's staying on the apron, the person that's doing the move always takes the worst bump because you're always coming with so much momentum and you can't just stop that momentum on a dime. And the other guy just has to bump. So it's so funny to see Mafia. He takes this big, ugly-looking bump to the floor because he has all this momentum on his side. And Storm on Quiet Storm, on the meantime, just does a regular standard bump on the apron because, you know, that's all you need to do. Right. It, these, these apron moves are a little bit weird in that sense. Uh, last thing, the fun thing I really liked about this match... The crowd, some of them, chanted a fuck the hit squad chant. And it got quickly shouted down by other people in the crowd. But it is yet another sign after last, after the last show that some of the fans were turning on the hit squad, even though they were supposed to be the faces of the company in some ways they were kind of positioned as, like the mouthpieces. Well, I blame the booking. The booking of them was bad, so it was worth turning on them. I will say, though, um, I like that if if it transitions from the the carnage crew getting shit on to the hit squad being getting shit on i think that the hit squad deserve it slightly more and, and i i want to make clear like you were saying it's not on the hit squad it's it's on the booking of of the hit squad but i still appreciate that booking getting shit on um next we get another quick we go backstage yet again um Xavier wishes wishes low key luck backstage, and I know other people probably called low key low key, but after last month's episode where um, Xavier called Jerry Lynn Jerry Lynn, I just like the idea that Xavier calls everybody by their full names. Like, hello, low key. Hello, Jerry Lynn. Hello, I just everybody's name. I like that idea. Hello, Amer- I- hello, American Dragon Brian Danielson. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, did I hear right? Did Xavier say to to Loki, "I was the one guy you didn't wrestle in the tournament"? Because, the, the, sorry, go ahead. Go on. Go. No, you go on. No, because I because if he said that, it's like he didn't wrestle almost anyone in the tournament. He only wrestled two people, and literally didn't wrestle everyone else. Okay, I think there's a bit of correction here. He said he's the only one he didn't wrestle in his block of the tournament. Because remember, the tournament was split into four blocks. And in the block that Loki and Xavier was, were in were, was Xavier versus Red and Loki versus Prince Nana. That was the four people in their block. But I think what's really funny about that is Xavier in this segment is asking Loki, hey, Loki, if you win the world title tonight, you never wrestled me in our block. I'm the only guy in our four-man block of the tournament you didn't wrestle. Remember that, and could you give me a title shot? And Loki's like, sure. But let's point out, the reason why Xavier didn't wrestle Loki is because he lost his match. Yeah, he, like, he was the guy who lost in the first round. His argument is literally... You haven't wrestled me before in, in Ring of Honor. I should get a title shot, which is the same rationale that I could use to ask Loki for a title shot. But he's never wrestled you ever. 
like, hey, hey, you coward. I mean, he's not he's doing it as a friend in this in this segment. Yeah. But I mean, how would you, you might as well just say like, hey, you coward, you didn't wrestle me in the tournament. What's the deal? Why were you ducking me? Oh, wait, I lost. I mean, like, it just doesn't doesn't come off as great. But we're setting up a big match in kind of the history of Ring of Honor, at least in its first year, for a couple shows down the line. We're setting up another thing. And we right back to wrestling. James Maritato taking on James Briscoe. I mean, Jay Briscoe. There's only one James here. And James Maritato. It was not a double James match. It was not J and J. Um, yes, it was. Oh, wait. Oh, I'm, I am off my game now. Holy crap. Uh, <laughs> thank well, God. It was that not the historic is. Battle of the Jameses. <laughs> thank God that Matt is here. Um, I really, really mean that. James Maritato beats Jay Briscoe in 835 when Maritato pins Jay after the kiss of death, which is, for those who don't know, that's basically Christians on Prettier. If, if you need a a more modern example of what that move is. And Matt, would you like to start first on this one? Um, no, but I'll do it anyway. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, no, no, I can. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. Um, so, um, it's a lot of focus on Mark at ringside. Um, I feel like that's almost the main focus. Would would you, would you say? Yes. This is another match where they've really been ramping up the Mark element and, the focus, I think, on the last couple Jay Briscoe matches almost completely goes to just what's Mark doing at ringside. Mark doesn't like when Ray, when Jay's doing well. It, it's and this time it factors into the finish because, in fact, Mark then at one point leaves, goes to walk to the back, which distracts Jay and allows James to get the win. So this is the first time it actually goes as far as to cause the finish of the match. Yeah, and like. Yeah, and the, as far as the match itself, you know, it's another one that's kind of short. Um, um, you know, not super short, but, um, you know, Mark is happy when Maritato clips uh, Jay's leg from behind. There's a really, uh, Jay hits a really good drop kick off the second rope at one point. You know, a lot of his offense, you know, is starting to look pretty good. Um, uh, there was one, uh, you know, I always like to quote Donnie B. There was, a, you know, the, in the early part of the match, they were going for a lot of pinfalls early. And then later on in the match, uh, someone goes for a pin and Donnie B goes that was the first pinfall attempt by Maritato in the matchup and I was like what they, he went for like a bunch of them already <laughs> um, um, and you know at that point you know Mark walks away Jay's mad and Maritano hits like you said the kiss of death for the win um, you know it was really mostly a backdrop for the uh, for the Jay and Mark feud um, the, not much else to it really but you know I, kind of uh, I guess an aside but it's interesting that I've noticed this in uh, the ROH shows so far. There are a lot of guys on these shows that were known for having, like, you know, memorable matches elsewhere. First of all, um, the Briscoes against each other. Um, uh, Maritato, you know, obviously had lots of really good matches in ECW. Uh, Tony Mamaluke did, too. Um, you know, Xavier had a lot of really good matches, or some, at least, that had were well-regarded on the indies prior to that. Uh, Red, um, even, you know, Scoot Andrews, guys like that. You know, they were known for having... Um, you know, good matches. And they've all been just kind of kind of there in ROH. You know, if you just watched uh, Maritato in ROH, you'd never know that he was a particularly good wrestler. You know, the Briscoes, you would never know that they were anything special up to this point. 
You know, I think they, they'll get their chance next month. But so far, it's weird how ROH, you know, the wrestling promotion, brings in all these guys and has continually put most of them in just all these nothing matches. It's weird. I I think it's it's weird in general on the undercard. I think, like you said, a lot of these guys aren't getting to put their best effort forward here. On the But I think if we narrow it down to Jay specifically, if you look at the first five shows, Jay's been booked really weird where every single match he's wrestled in, He's had he's been put against a good opponent, a guy he could have a good match with. Amazing Red, Spanky, Doug Williams, Tony Mamalu, James Maritato, and all those guys, talented wrestlers. And apart from the Spanky match, they've all been super short changed on time, or at least fair I mean, most of them have been, you know, five to eight minutes or whatever. Oh and Half of them have been completely derailed by the Mark Briscoe stuff, where the the focus is entirely on Mark Briscoe. And we know Jay is is posed poised for bigger things in Ring of Honor because we're not fortune tellers. We just know somehow. But he's they're really squandering him because he was already talented, as I think we'll see on the next show. He was already talented, and they're they're putting him in these matches where they could be good, but then they just they don't give it the time. And they they pile this Mark Briscoe stuff on, which I know is leading to a match. But is there is this the only way you could do it? Yeah, and I, I think I think that um, Maritato is um, is another one that I think you could say something similar to. Like he was very well regarded in ECW. He was in part of a lot of really good matches. Would you agree with that? At, you know, yeah, he was one of their mid card workhorses, definitely in the final years. I I think a lot of people's you know some of their fondest memories of the latter years of. ECW would be, you know, Little Guido versus Tajiri and Super Crazy and matches like that. And some of those tag matches with the, um, you know, with Little Guido and Mamaluke um, against yeah. Whipwreck and Tajiri. And he was only 30 years old in 2002. You know, he was not an oh. old guy. He was younger than Christopher Daniels. And a good wrestler, and they really just, um, they they just decided he wasn't worth featuring. I don't know, maybe they thought he was going to, you know, sh- WWE bound you know, in short order. That could be the only thing I could think of. But I, I can't see why they wouldn't try to give him a chance to have top-level matches. And they definitely did not, at any point in these first five shows, give him even a chance to have a top-level match. And I actually thought this match was below average. I thought there was... Jay, as usual, Jay in every one of these Ring of Honor matches is always good for a few big, really cool-looking moves. Yeah. Uh, he does a leg capture stunner here, I think is really cool, where he holds one of James's um, legs and, and does the stunner, which I don't know if in kayfabe terms that would make the move more effective, but it looked cool. I don't know why someone doesn't steal that if they're, if they're not already stealing it. But I thought this match... It was another short match that would have been average, but there was a few rough points for me where at one point, for example, Jay runs into the corner and runs and jumps onto the second turnbuckle, and he just stands there like a deer in the headlights with his back to Guido with uh, Maritato. Maritato would hate me for almost saying Guido. Um, And commentary tries to say that Jay was thrown off by Ring of Honor's new one-piece turnbuckle pads, and maybe he was. But it just looked weird for him to jump on the turnbuckle and just stand there and not do anything. And then when he finally does do a move, he does one of those things he did on the first show against Red, where he jumps off the turnbuckle 
and is clearly making no attempt at any move. He just needs to jump off the turnbuckle so Guido can hit him with something. And the, there's another moment later where uh, Jay and Maritalo are doing a there's a power bomb spot, and they both take the bump on their ass, but yet only one of them sells. I don't know how. Again, I don't know who was supposed to be hurt on that move. Um, there's another moment later where Jay jumps into a sitting position on the top turnbuckle, and he just waits. You know, has to wait a little too long for um, Maritano to come over and do something with him. There's just a few rough moments like that where guys are waiting a few seconds too long for the next move. And look, Jay was an 18 year old kid, so that's to be forgiven. But I think. I think a lot of why he hasn't been looking good has been Ring of Honor's booking of him, but I also think this wasn't this was probably his worst individual performance yet in the company. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I really just thought like they they threw it out there just for this angle, pretty much, which is I think a waste of these two guys because maybe if they actually had a reason to try to have a good match, they would have, but like you said, just didn't work out. Yeah. So we go back. And Christopher Daniels is backstage with Simply Luscious in what has to be the dingiest part of the Murphy Rec Center we've seen yet. He cuts a short promo, which is much like Loki's at the start of the show, where he is basically just recapping you on what Christopher Daniels has done in Ring of Honor so far. Nothing much more to say about that. Well, uh, one thing I'll say. Um, okay. This is the first time that we mention that this show is – one thing this show is famous for is that it's, you know, in July – and it's really, really, really hot in the Murphy Rec Center. Supposedly, like around 100 degrees, right? That's what that's what the reports were saying. Yeah. And uh, everyone changes. Some people say over 95. Some say close to 100. But the point is, extremely hot building. Yeah, and I noticed during Christopher Daniels's promo that he started sweating like crazy. Like I'm sure he like you know like wiped himself down like at the beginning of the promo, but by like the middle of the promo, sweat is just dripping down his face. And then from that point forward, watching the show, I could not concentrate on anything except the fact that it must have been torture to be performing in this venue on this day. And speaking of torture, the next segment is we jarringly cut to extreme close-up of a screaming kid, like young man's face, and as the camera pans out. We see it's because Doug Williams is stretching him over his head, and Doug Williams is spitting when, he, when he's talking and just yelling, this is Spanky, this is Loki, this is Christopher Daniels, and he does that twice, and that's the entire segment. Yeah, now Doug so, Williams' nickname is the torture device, right? Yes. So, and this is like, sort of like a stretch muffler move that, he, that he's doing, um... Uh, Davey Richards would do it at different points. I know um, Brock Lesnar did it. I'm sure people in Japan did it. I don't know, but um, this is uh, but yeah, that's the move where the guy's leg is like just like over his bent over his neck. <laughs> it was just a. It was funny. To, it was such a jarring cut from the Christopher Daniels thing. But I guess during before the main event, they wanted to spotlight all four guys in the main event, and Doug Williams doesn't really have a past in the coming to recap the way that. Uh, Daniels and Key do, does so. Yeah, and I feel like instead, it was almost intentional, right? Like to have that contrast. Like Daniels, he's like motor mouth, like just like has a, just like whining and all this stuff. And and Doug Williams is just like he's not saying much. He's just fucking people yeah. shit up. You know, he's the technical guy that's really gonna hurt you and is intimidating. And next, we're getting we're back to another match. We're getting the natural born sinners taking on the Carnage Crew in a bunkhouse brawl. 
And the Sinners beat the Carnage crew in 9 minutes, 35 seconds, after Boogaloo makes DeVito submit to a camel clutch with barbed wire in the mouth. And, who this match is by far the most violent match we've seen in Ring of Honor up to this point. So unlike anything they've done to this point. Um, first, before I say anything else, I want to give credit to the Carnage crew for wearing flannel to a bunkhouse brawl. That's how you do it. Good on you, boys. Um, this is just insanely violent. Um, so in that sense, they delivered on what they promised. The first minute or two, you're thinking it's not that violent. It looks like a lot of just slow brawling in, in corners. And most of the first minute or two is just focused on um, got Homicide and DeVito trying to cut themselves or cut each other with barbed wire in the corner. But then once it goes to the outside, once Homicide and DeVito go to the outside, the rest of this match is, you know, it's, it's a match that will make some people in 2017 uncomfortable to watch. There are a lot of hard, unprotected chair shots to the head. All four guys bleed. There is um, crowd brawling. There's cowbell shots. There's whipping with a strap. There's a lot a, of barbed wire. Barbed standing. wire moonsault. Barbed wire clothesline. Barbed wire camel clutch for the finish. A blood at, at a point in a few minutes into the match gets smeared on one of the the handheld camera, and you see that blood smear for another, I would say, two or three matches. You know, I think it gets wiped off in time for the main event. But in a way, this whole match was a video blood smear. And I thought, I'm always of two minds of these kind of matches. I'm a person who can put aside his kind of conscious brain and enjoy it for the spectacle it is. But I can understand if anybody doesn't enjoy this match because again there's some really really brutal unprotected hair ch chair shots not hair shots there's not much hair to shot here um <laughs> there there there's a ton of blood but in terms of what you would want from this kind of match it delivered you know these guys give up a lot of themselves for this match yeah i mean i think this match is actually fairly well regarded uh in ROH history, like, it's, like, the first bloodbath, and they do a good job, and it sort of got the Carnage crew over. Um, that said, I wasn't, I wasn't into it. I, um, I thought it was just, it was just too much gratuitous violence. Um, like, I guess it felt like a real, like, hate-filled fight. I don't know if their feud actually got to the point where the, it earned that degree of hate-filled fight. You know what I mean? I agree. I, it's almost too brutal for how short the feud has been. Yeah, exactly. It's like what like these guys like hate each other so much, and the the degree of hatred I don't think was fully uh, like you know explained out to you know as to where that would make sense. So it sort of just felt gratuitous, like ECW style. Honestly, it was probably a lot better than a lot of the ECW brawls in the sense that they weren't there wasn't a lot of like convoluted setup. It was just like they just liked start cutting each other with barbed wire basically and it's the right length it's nine and a half minutes it's not you know there's not 10 minutes of crowd brawling stuck in there yeah so it's not like they did anything wrong or that it wasn't like what it was supposed to be i, I just i don't know i just didn't get too totally into it but the crowd loved it the crowd loved it like they they yeah. really went crazy for it so they guess they i guess they did their job this is the first Carnage Crew match that the crowd doesn't shit on. So, in that sense, it accomplished something. It, it, you know, it maybe 
got conditioned these Philly fans that maybe we don't have to hate every segment the Carnage crew is involved in. It, all it took them was nearly killing each other to do it. But, um, you know, it's funny, too, that this match was basically, you know, the cameras, they didn't have enough people to really follow all four guys around. So most of this match you're really seeing is a DeVito homicide singles match with occasional cuts to Loke fighting Boogaloo. Yeah. And they all get more involved in the end. But if I had to follow Loke and Boogaloo or Homicide and DeVito, I think they made the right choice of following Homicide and DeVito. But again, if you if you like really crazy, you know, hardcore plunder gimmick stuff with lots of gore, you'll really like this match. If you don't, if you hate that kind of match, you will absolutely despise this match. But I, I can't fault them for doing exactly what I think was probably promised of them. Yeah, I neither, I neither despised nor loved it, but it just... I not the worst totally nor the best? Yeah, exactly. it was not the worst uh, bunkhouse brawl I've ever seen. Um, it wasn't the best bunkhouse brawl I've ever seen, though. I will <laughs> say that. Uh, the ending was cool, though. Uh, it was like, um, in the sense of... You know, obviously, like, the, the, the barbed wire, like, cross face across the mouth is gross, and I wouldn't recommend any wrestling match ever having that again. But the fact that, it, like, right before that, Homicide did this crazy uh, tope conhilo to the outside and, like, just, like, you know, took out the guardrail and the crowd. Like, that was the first time he really did one, like, quite that crazy. That, that's the craziest one he's done yet in the company. Like, yeah. Like, his, his topes always seem on the border being crazy and out of control. For my money, he has one of the best topes in, in history. But this one, I mean... Super reckless. He, he, like you said, he breaks the guardrail with it. Yeah, and the crowd goes nuts, and then immediately you get into that camel clutch, and the, and Devito taps out. So it's like the perfect like way to peak the crowd. So they did a good job with it. And the other thing I'll note that I thought was funny is um, Homicide. One of the only re- there's only a, there's not too many wrestling moves in the match, but there are a few. But I like that one of the first ones in the match is Homicide hitting a shining wizard, because of course it was 2002. And 60% of wrestlers did a Shining Wizard in 2002, even during a crazy bunkhouse brawl, found a way to put the Shining Wizard in the match. Um, and the other big thing was, the obviously the best part of this match was Donnie B calling Homicide Homicide accidentally, catching himself at the start of at the start of the match and then correcting himself. And then later because he, he because, back. because he didn't want Homicide to kill him. Right, that's that, that's the reason that he corrected. I'm I'm serious. Well, later in the match, he slips and starts saying homicide again. And there's one other great Donnie B quote oh, no. where when he's talking about the brutality of the match, I he know says, I know what you're gonna say. I wrote this down too. Do you? Oh, some men do crossword puzzles when they're angry, and some men find a beautiful woman and make love to them. But this is what these men do when they're angry. Do you know any men who do either of those two things when they're angry? I do crossword puzzles occasionally. I don't think I do it when I'm angry. I, 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 don't, I don't. I don't. I mean, I might have done crossword puzzles when I was angry, but it was a coincidence. You know what I mean? <laughs> I've gotten angry because of the New York Times crossword puzzle, but not before. I didn't bring that anger into the proceedings. Yeah. Now I, I can say that I have never, when angry, found a beautiful woman and made love to her. Uh, <laughs> That's something you got to check off soon. Yeah, the, the the not only because not only is it the 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 making love that's done when you're angry, but it's finding the woman is also during that same fit of anger. 
And you know what's a great way to wind down from when you make love to a beautiful woman when you're really angry? Yeah. Do a crossword puzzle. Yeah, I think that's true. Just pull it out of the bed st- nightstand, start actually, doing it. Yeah, and actually, it's a really making love to a beautiful woman is a really nice way from winding down from a, trying to finish a really frustrating crossword puzzle. And a clue to how to make love to a beautiful woman right, just like a crossword puzzle, you got to go down and across. got to pay attention to both. Just going um, to move right along. <laughs> We're going to get banned after the first show on the network. Um, post-match, the Carnage crew are poor losers. They attack the sinners with their trademark hubcaps, which it was interesting. They only brought them out after the match in a match that used pretty much every other piece of plunder imaginable. Um, and then the the hit squad come in and save their New York friends, the sinners. I thought what was adorable here was... Um, after the hit squad chased the carnage crew away, homicides all beaten down and, and disoriented. And as one of the hit squad is helping him up, homicide doesn't really know who's helping him or what's going on. And he rubs his hand on the hit squad member's bald head to try and figure out who it is for a second before he turns and looks at him. And I thought, in the match you were wrestling, you're bald, your partner's bald, DeVito's bald, both the hit squad are bald. Like... Rubbing your hand on someone's head isn't going to help you a ton to figure out who's, who's in the ring with you right now, my friend. Yeah, and also, he got really mad when he found out that the, hip, that the hit squad were helping him. He was like, I don't need your fucking help. I don't need your fucking help, right? All that stuff. And, and, and um, Mafia was like, what? What? I'm just trying to help you. You're my teacher. You're my teacher. I'm just trying to help you. But I know this is wrestling, so you got to you know, suspend some disbelief. But could you imagine getting like hit in the head with two hubcaps and then being mad about anything besides that three minutes after it happens? I, I can understand. If anyone can get away with it, it's homicide, that kind of bravado of, yeah. you know, I don't need any help. You know, you're, you're making me look bad. You're, you're cutting my balls off by helping me. But, you know, they're, they're trying to build this feud up. They started on the last show where, you know, the, the sinners got angry that just how dare the hit squad say they might be the best tag team. So... You know, it's it's a few that's going to be built on just the sinners are touchy about this stuff, and they don't they don't they don't like the idea of not looking like the best, strongest people that can take care of themselves. Yeah, well, a homicide in particular. Yeah, homicide's a guy who can pull that off because you can believe that that kind of machismo is that important to him, and that he doesn't want anyone undercutting him. Yeah. And you can believe when he gets really really angry. But next we get. Uh, Spanky promo, and this is shot in the Murphy Rex Center as they're setting up before the show. We can see Christopher Daniels in the background the entire time cutting a different promo. And at one point, uh, Scoot Andrews just walks right into frame holding a drink. So kind of that ramshackle, impromptu feel to the promo. And this is a different Spanky promo than we've gotten in Ring of Honor before. All the goofiness is gone. He's really trying hard to cut a serious promo here. And... He's talking about how he has sacrificed more than anyone else in the main event. How, you know, all the sacrifices he's made for wrestling. He brings up how he's beaten Daniels and Loki in matches before, which is interesting because those are matches that took place outside of Ring of Honor. Um, The one weird thing he does is when he comes to Doug Williams, he says, I don't really know Doug Williams' British style. But then... Seconds later, he brags that he's been trained by William Regal and Robbie Brookside, which you would think 
you would learn a little bit of the British style if you got trained by William Regal and Robbie Brookside. Oh my god, maybe he doesn't know that they're British. <laughs> I know the Irish style. That's what they are, right? That's yeah. what those accents, accents mean. Yeah. So, I wouldn't the, say this... Pr- those are, oh, Cana- sorry, those but, are Canadian accents. You no, know, right? you gotta talk about oot and uh, bagged milk, and I'm selling out my people here right now. Mm-hmm. But... Um, I thought the promo, it wasn't bad. I thought it was really interesting that they... I don't think he quite had the the gravitas yet to... Even though that's a horrible word in some ways. It's only, that's only a good word if Keith Sutherland is saying it on his, as his favorite word on Inside the Actor's Studio and getting mocked for it. But it is do, the right do, word. do not say his least favorite word, because then we will be banned. <laughs> I'm not gonna, oh my god, I am not going to say that word. Okay. Homicide might say that word. I'm not going to say it. Um, Spanky, you know, he, he didn't quite have it to maybe pull off a promo this serious, but I appreciate that, that he's going for it and that he's, you know, this is the biggest match of his career thus far, so I, I appreciate that he is really cutting out all the comedy and trying to sell it as this meaning a lot to him. I like this promo. I, yeah, you know, I mean, like you said, yeah, it's, it wasn't great, but it was, you know, he was he was trying. He, it was the first time he came across like a person um, in ROH, and I think that means something. He had so he had some good like funny lines, like he said that Loki looks like Nosferatu. Which, <laughs> I thought that was a good reference. You know, let let's you know that's what Spanky said, so you could take it or leave it. Um, you know, I, yeah, I like I like that too. Again, he's a young guy to be making that reference, so I thought that was cool. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, he was talking about his sacrifices that he made, all that stuff. You know, you haven't sacrificed the way I've sacrificed. And it was like, it was good. Like, it was believable. Like, you know, you believed him. Um, the one sacrifice he did not mention, um, which, you know, impressed a lot of people, was when he, in his underwear, walked across an Alaskan highway <laughs> to get a Snickers bar. Um, but that's a callback, in case anyone yes. wants to listen to. Just pour, pour over past episodes to see if you could find what that's a reference to. Um but- that's a callback that's actually worth finding. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I thought it was a good promo. I uh, I you know I was like fi- finally you know as he's on his way out of the company, he's finally starting to come into his own. And it's a it's a nice way you know now all four guys have gotten their own little segments before the main event. So some of these segments over the year over the early shows feel meaningless, but it's nice that these actually you know they're serving to make the main event feel bigger. Um, next, we're getting uh, a segment that does not make the show feel bigger. We get one of the wackier skits of the night, where backstage we find the Boogie Knights, after we haven't seen them for a show or two, and Danny Drink is injured in a wheelchair with a neck brace. His partner, Mike Tobin, doesn't know who he'll find to be his partners in a six-man tag tonight. I'll just note that... Even if Danny Drake wasn't injured, he would still have had to find a third partner. So you should have been more prepared, my friend. Um, Rob Feinstein shows up, and he has Dunn and Marcos in tow, and he says they'll be their partners. And that's the entire segment. Yeah, um, I don't have anything to say about that. But yeah, but it's, 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 just in- when, it's interesting, all these segments that they have on these shows. Like they, they, they are just chock full of skits. It's interesting that this match that they are in is so clipped that it ends up barely being longer than this segment explaining the match. And it's interesting, you know, it shows you what's so different from today's indie wrestling to yesteryear, where ROH even had to felt the need to explain even a six-man tag with the Boogie Knights and Dunham Marcos at this point. Yeah. Like, they had to make sure 
there was at least some justification for what you were going to see. It's almost like Vince Russo style, where everybody needs like something, like they need, yeah. which is I don't know. It has its pluses, it has its minuses, but I guess mm-hmm. we'll get to it. And that brings us to our next match, which is AJ Styles defending his NWA TNA X Division Championship in an elimination three-way against Adam Jacobs and David Young. And AJ wins this match in 801. He scores both eliminations. He beats Young after 532 when he pins him after a spiral tap. And then he finishes off Jacobs at 801 after a second rope styles clash or I guess a super styles clash. And a few interesting things about this match. The first thing I thought was real interesting was commentary goes out of their way to thank NWA for allowing this match to take place in Ring of Honor. They say this is the first NWA, I mean, the first X Division title match to take place outside of the NWA. They thank Jerry Jarrett, Bill Barons, and Jim Miller by name. They um, they go on to say that AJ Styles gave up his plane ticket for this show so that the saved money could be used to pay for the transportation for his friends Jacobs and Young so they could work this match here. Um, there's still a smear of blood on the camera lens from the last match. And for people that think that Ring of Honor and indie fans always hated TNA, I'll point out that um, there was actually a TNA chant at the start of the show, at the start of this match. So it wasn't always that way. They, they were pumped that they were getting a TNA X Division title match here. They really, people really wanted an alternative to WWE to succeed at this time because it was like Armageddon when WCW and ECW closed. Like, it's crazy, right? The thing that they, yeah. There was all this stuff, and then there was one thing. So I think everybody who was a fan of wrestling outside of WWE was rooting for these other companies. But I, I just love that... Th- there was a ver- there's a very clear example here of some people seem to think that you know people that hate TNA have always hated TNA and it was because you know they're so anti W they're such WWE marks they can't accept anything else. This crowd was hungry, like you said, for t- for TNA. They they wanted it to succeed even on this night in this match with two guys they hadn't seen before. They wanted this to succeed. And it's impressive so- because TNA just that name alone made you kind of not like them, right? Like, it was just like yeah. such a ridiculous like, play on whatever it was a play on. Although, to be fair, Ring of Honor crowds at this point have already chanted things worse than TNA, like, faggot on the first show. So, True. Um, the, the, before, I'll let you get into thoughts, because trading off letting you get thoughts first, but the one other little news note from this match is it was apparently, it only goes eight minutes, it was apparently supposed to go longer. The reports were that since Styles in this match accidentally gets busted open, that uh, he he decided to take the match home a few minutes early. But I thought it was interesting that that's the story because the cut at first is pretty bad. He's bleeding quite a bit. But minutes before the end of the match, the cut is completely scabbed over and most of the blood is wiped away. Like, he looks so... Maybe he was woozy or something. But in terms of blood loss... He was looking pretty good at that point. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know how much I buy that because, like, you know, you see, guys. I mean, he bled a lot more the previous show, right? Didn't he against Daniels? He bled a similar amount, but I would that was intentional. This is clearly, I think, unintentional bleeding. But just even think about the match before. If he, even if it was worry about the show getting mad, we just had seen four guys bleed buckets on the previous match. 
So a little little bit of blood from AJ isn't going to ruin things. Yeah. Um, one thing I found interesting was the commentary, you know, it's recorded in post-production. And they knew this match was going to be eight minutes. And yet they immediately decide to compare it to the op- to the main event of the first ROH show, which is <laughs> one of, like, the great indie shows of all time. They're like, oh, these, these guys have a lot to live up to after that last three-way that we saw. And it was like, why would you even... Why would you even say that? That's that's like putting them in an impossible situation. Yeah. Um, which is so, which is not, I don't think, what commentators should be doing for uh, for the wrestlers. Um, but you know, I guess it was mostly just a um, a showcase for AJ. You know, to do some of his moves. Um, I didn't realize that uh, David Young was called the um, Messiah of the Spinebuster. I don't. Did he? Did that name stick with him for years after that? I'm not sure. David Young would go on to an extended run in uh, TNA. And he would be back in, in ROH a few times also. Yeah. Jacob's not so much. Yep. But I, I wonder if Steve Prino was just like biting his tongue that his friend C.W. Anderson was not getting mentioned about being the master of a spine buster. But I thought David Young actually, they sold him real hard. They, they talked. His build weight was 260, and they sold him real hard as being able to do athletic stuff for a guy that size. Yeah, Carino, and, Carino was talking about how he, like, asked Zero One to book David Young because he was so impressed with him. So, like, obviously David Young was considered someone to watch back then. Yeah, but I, I thought this match was, um... It, well, it, it's eight minutes of spots. I thought it had that very choreographed feel, the way that, uh... Scoot, Xavier, and Maritato's uh, three-way hat on an early Ring of Honor show. I um, I thought Jacobs didn't look particularly great. He and Young badly botch a simple neckbreaker spot, in, which gets jeers from the crowd. Um, he waits for at one point. Jacobs waits forever for David Young to stand to his feet and not just stand, but turn to face Jacobs. And I thought, why are you waiting that long for this to happen? Because, you know, Young's down and hurt. And then when I see Jacobs throw his first punch and it gets blocked by Young, I was like, oh, because that was the next spot. You needed him to get into position. And there, there's, a, there's a few spots like that, again, where it's very – it's like a lot of these three ways where everything's kind of scripted out probably or at least parts of it. And if a guy isn't in the right place at the right moment, sometimes guys just get kind of stuck. And I think Jacobs had a couple moments like that where – He's kind of waiting. He's 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 waiting for some. He's waiting for his dance partner to get into position. Yeah, um, you know th- that's a problem with a lot of these three ways. But also, it's a problem with a lot of these ROH undercard matches. Like this, like this feeling of like rehearsed, scripted. You know, just very like by the by. You know, some sort of numbers. You know, there's kind of no soul to the matches. And. I think it'll be very interesting to watch over the next, you know, couple of years that we uh, review how the ROH indie style kind of gets back to basics a little bit and improves a lot by doing so. Because uh, I, I remember noticing it at the time. I don't know if you noticed it too, but I'm very interested to see if like that matches my memory of like some of these undercard indie matches becoming a little bit more basic, but also a lot better. And yeah, and, yeah. More grounded, maybe more um, built on the fly rather than we're going to do a tightly scripted match with the seven to eight minutes we're getting. Again, I know this match 
it, it was apparently cut shorter, but there's a lot of these Ring of Honor matches where they're not even getting much time to build something from the ground up with. So I almost can't completely blame them for scripting things out a bit. Yeah, but maybe simpler would have been better. I don't know. You know, it's tough to say. It's a tough call because at the time, people were just wanted to be impressed by moves. But I don't know if impressive moves were really enough even then. I, I will say, overall, I would say this match evens out to average because I think... I always th- think of AJ Styles as a guy who, in his late 30s, hitting 40, that hasn't lost much of his athleticism. But I actually thought you could see the difference here in this match where he's really fast. You can tell he is going for broke in this match, trying to really have a good match with his friends here who are getting their first shot. He pulls out the Dragon Rana, where he does the forward flip into the Hurricane Rana. Um, like, he is just... You, he's in his athletic prime here. I think you know yeah. he's young, doesn't have any miles on many miles on his body. He's fast, you know, and he's willing to try anything. For me, um, AJ Styles from this point until like 2006 is one of the most impressive athletic wrestlers I've ever seen. Like just in terms of like the crispness, the speed, the precision of what he does. You know, he doesn't have the entire like psychological package down until later, but the athleticism of what he does. I, I find just like captivating during that that four year period, and this is an example where he looks great even if the match is not great. Yeah, and David Young gets to show off some big moves for a guy his size, and um, uh, but the thing I was impressed with most with David Young actually was just the power slams he did. I thought the power slams he made look made look almost effortless and i i love big guys that are athletic but i especially love when those big athletic guys still show that they have power because i think if it's just a big guy doing flips it you have to be reminded that no this guy's strong too you know that 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 makes everything all the flying stuff more cool i think but because you have that contrast so i appreciated that again if you just want to see eight minutes of big moves this wasn't bad. There, there was roughness to it, and it felt a little plastic. And it's a match where I think if all these guys got to repeat the match the next night, they would have done it better. Because there wouldn't have been the blood. They probably wouldn't have screwed up as many things. You know, Might not have been 100 degrees in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that, there was a kind of bad feeling of some things are going wrong here, and you probably – you guys – like, I know you three could have done a better match than you did here. Um, any other thoughts on the match, or should we just move on? Yeah, I think that's pretty much we said what we could say about that one. Yeah, so David Young will be back. I don't think Jacobs will be. AJ Styles, eh, he might be back. And we move on to um, ring announcer Steven DeAngelis is in the ring. And he announces Ring of Honor's return date for Philly, including the in-ring debut of Steve Carino, which did not, in fact, happen on this date because of 0-1 commitments. He also plugs the one-night tag title tournament and the debut Ring of Honor debut of Michael Modest. Those two things did happen. Rudy Boy Gonzalez comes in the ring. He storms in, holding the mic, and he's holding a Ring of Honor VHS tape in his hand as if to prove that he watched the show. And he... Uh, he calls out Steve Carino for running him down on commentary and for making out on with Simply Luscious on the Last Ring of Honor show, which isn't really any of his business, but even if it's a student, whatever. And then 
He says at the next Philly show, he's going to send his top student, American Dragon, to kick Carino's ass. Which, if the last show, we in, they had a, the announcement of Spanky versus American Dragon, two out of three falls in Boston. And that was kind of like the first lost Ring of Honor match that was announced that never happened. Big one. This is the second one, which also, again, involves American Dragon. And it's not his fault, because Carino will have to pull out. So... Not that I think Carino versus American Dragon 2002 is the hugest loss in the world. Yeah, no, no. I mean, maybe it uh, would have put some more steam on this on this storyline, but yeah, I don't really think that we missed too too much from that match. But this is another little story that's continuing—not an intentional story, but a real story of zero one, you know, obligations forcing guys like Spanky and and Carino to miss stuff. And obviously C.W. Anderson was initially supposed to get a run in ring of honor, but Gabe gets mad when he, he uh, C.W. allows Gabe to shoot an angle for C.W. without telling him that he won't be able to be at the next show because he's already booked for zero one then. So zero one and ROH are kind of having to maneuver around each other. Well, ring of honor more than zero one, but yeah, zero one's fucking all their shit up. <laughs> that's a, that's the correct way of putting it. Yeah. Um, next, we get the Ring Crew Express and Mike Tobin defeating Brian XL, Dixie, and Black Gordman Jr. with Izzy coming them to the ring. And this is a complete clip job. It's not it's, even... It's, it's highlight video to classic ROH-style techno music. Yeah. And Dunn wins when he pins Gordman with a top rope leg drop. Again, nothing but clips here. It's not even one of those cases of clips in the final few minutes. Just clips, just the techno. But the match, um, the match is such that just right at the beginning, uh, Dixie and Brian XL beat up Gordman Jr. and abandon him, and that allows Tobin, Dunn, and Marcos to win. Pretty much. That's all that we see, basically. And this is the second match on the show that has that same finish because, of course, we have maybe not quite the same, but Nana walking out on... Um, Jacob Ladder and Jacob Ladder getting beat up with this numbers game and losing quickly. So the only we don't see much here in this. It's it's a little weird that the debut of Special K is a clip match. I mean they, they they were running short on time here. They barely fit everything at three hours with the clipping they did. But it's a bit weird that this is their debut and we don't we we don't actually get to see them have their match. We don't really even hear the name Special K. Well, I guess maybe they hadn't settled on it yet. Maybe not. And um, the only thing in the clips I saw was uh, Brian Excel absolutely like doing a forward flip. And I don't know if he intended to end in a stop, but he absolutely killed somebody, it looked like, in one of these clips. Um, and then at the, end of the at the end of the clips, we cut back to the ring for proper, and we see a giant dreadlocked man in a suit and sunglasses enter the ring, and he choke slams the winning, te winning team and attacks Drake in his wheelchair and then leaves back to the crowd. This would end up being Slugga, the bodyguard of um, Special K. Here he kind of comes off as a low-rent 911. Yeah, I think that's pretty much the idea. Yeah, very ECW-influenced. But we cut next backstage to an angry, bloody, barbed-wired DeVito who's with Loke. He, they challenge the Hit Squad to a Boston Massacre match at the next show. Something tells me, Matt, that a Boston Massacre match is going to be very similar to a Bunkhouse Brawl. 
Yeah, I'm thinking that. You know what's funny is that um, when I was a kid, like late 90s, really into like ECW type stuff, um, I like was wrote this like fantasy booking, like federation kind of thing, and I booked a Boston Massacre match. And here's how stupid this was. So I was like probably like 14, and I, it was a Boston Massacre match, and the two wrestlers involved were going to be Bret Hart and Owen Hart, and this is the match that I wanted to put Bret Hart and Owen Hart in when I was 14. It was a steel cage match with barbed wire around the steel cage and a scaffold between the steel cage. Like, so, like, the scaffold, like, would go over it, but, like, right above it. So, basically, it was, like, a bridge on top of the steel cage. And they would have to, like, knock the person off and then beat them in this barbed wire steel barbed wire steel cage scaffold match, and there were like weapons inside too. So that was my version of the Boston Massacre match. I'm very curious to find out if ROH did that exact same gimmick with these two teams. <laughs> oh, that's that's adorable. Like, the, I, I'm surprised that 14 year old Matt was able to imagine such a violent match. I know there's something wrong with me, right? I've, I mean, good thing, wire, good thing I've gotten it's... healthy now, right? Maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think you're much more well adjusted now after the treatments. Uh-huh. So, um, no, that's pretty. I, I I had a wrestling federation where I had my action figures fight, but I never had wrestling action figures. So it was more. I didn't have Boston Massacre matches, but I had like members of the Foot Clan wrestling the Terminator for the Intercontinental Title. So we all have our we all have our history with being right. kids. Now that was cooler. <laughs> yeah, not really. Uh, Foot Clan guy could do a great moonsault, though. But um, we get our last match before the main event. That's Scoot Andrews beating Xavier in five minutes of what we we were shown five minutes. Another clip at, match. It's insane, right? Yeah, where Scoot pins Xavier with the force of nature. We're told before the uh, in, in a highlight video, like a lot of these matches are getting. The highlight video for this one lets us know that Scoot will leave Ring of Honor if he doesn't beat Xavier here, and he does beat him. But yeah, this match is, I don't know how clipped it was. There's very obvious heavy clipping at the start, and then we get the final, I would say, three minutes probably uninterrupted, it looks like. But I guess, yeah, the show came in at 2.58, but this is the first show where you can really see, like, there was clipping on other shows, but multiple matches where obviously it's felt like they didn't want to clip these matches but had to like i bet they wanted to show all of xavier versus scoot but they just had to cut something and there, you couldn't there, cut... there was a little even i didn't mention it but there's a very like quick clip in that paul london match earlier too like, yeah one one that i noticed this is the first show where you can really feel they had to really go in there with the scissors and and make sure everything could fit here Possibly a sign that they're booking too much stuff on these shows. Yeah, something that I think we'll see later in the year that Gabe himself will admit later to uh, reporters. But it's hard to really judge this match because of the clips. We see the final few minutes, like I said, uninterrupted. Um, Xavier Blades, so this might be one of the bloodiest shows in Ring of Honor history between AJ and Xavier and all four guys in the bunkhouse brawl. Um, I don't know if Frank Talent was sleeping on this night, but... Well, the gimmick here is that if um, if Andrews doesn't win, 
he's going to leave ROH. That's what he says. That's what they say in the little preview video. Yeah. And um, it's a... it looks like the first Xavier um, scoot match from what I see, which is it's perfectly serviceable wrestling. There's one big botch at the end where the clear finish is supposed to be Xavier moonsaults. Uh, scoot catches him in midair, hits the force of nature and wins. Scoot gr- catches the moonsault but can't keep him up. They kind of, the momentum carries them across the ring. They fall on their ass. And they just stand up and immediately just go into the regular force of nature. So a, a real obvious, unfortunate, you know, fail botch there. But otherwise, this was just another average Xavier Scoot Andrews match. Now, there was, there was I mean, no commentary on this match either, right? Oh, yeah, that's the other thing. This is the other match on the show with no commentary, which that brings us to, uh, I think, three matches with no commentary. If you count the the music video of the previous yeah, yeah. match, yeah, it's weird. I don't know. It's strange. Uh, at one point in the match, one thing that I noticed, uh, Xavier did a razor's edge, um, and it's weird to hear a razor's edge. I mean, to see a razor's edge f- done by someone from Xavier's height because it just doesn't seem that devastating. You know, because like Xavier drops down and he's like Scott Hall is really tall, so him doing a razor's edge like it's like oh this guy's fallen from a big height. Uh, Xavier just dropping to his knees and doing a razor's edge. I don't know. It just seems like not that not that big of a deal. <laughs> I don't know. It's always a weird look if you're holding a guy in a razor's edge and their feet aren't that far off the canvas. Yeah. Like, you, you need the height to create that visual, at least. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I, again, I thought that Andrews looked better than Xavier. Um, I don't think Xavier's looked good in ROH so far. For no. Whatever, for whatever reason. Um, just... Just too stiff and too contrived um, stuff. Like you know, not a lot of like wrestling in between. Just and get, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, it's really interesting too that um, we're Xavier's booking. Everything I've read and seen over the years tells me that Ring of Honor was planning Xavier getting the title from basically near day one, if not day one, yeah. and yet. They're booking of him. He's doing a 50-50 feud with Scoot Andrews. That's not particularly great. He's wrestling a lot of short matches. He's getting beaten clean directly in that three-way with Scoot and Maritato. I don't know what... I know sometimes when people win a world title, win a title, the idea is you have them lose to some guys beforehand to set up future challengers. That isn't what this is. This is just really... He's being treated like any other random undercard guy on these first few shows. You wouldn't get any idea other than maybe the very faint hints they're getting, giving on some of these backstage segments of a partnership with uh, Daniels. Other than that, you wouldn't get any idea that they're trying to heat this guy up for a world title run. But I can actually see the logic of this. Because the way you get a guy over in ROH is not to have him win, right? It's to have him have great matches. Um and Xavier just had a bunch of like really plain average matches to the point where he wasn't going to get over. And he seemed like he had a bland personality, a bland character. So I think that they decided like the best way to have a heel champion is to have a champion that people were not impressed with in the ring. Ooh, that, uh, I feel like that rarely works out, but that, that could be their thinking. But it just, I don't know, you know, he... I've heard Xavier look better in other promotions, and obviously in terms of just 
for 2002 indies, he had a great body and a good, handsome look, and he could do some good things for a guy of his mass. You know, he could do the 450. I just, I, I would like to be a fly on the wall and know why they chose him. If, if what your reasoning is was the correct reasoning, and just I'd like to know Gabe's like show by show thoughts to how Xavier is doing. Well, one day Gabe will do a commentary track to uh, the show. Answering uh, all of our questions. He will mark my X spot. Uh-huh. Um, so that's that. Not much to really judge. Five minutes. But we're finally to the thing. Again, this whole show was apparently designed so that nothing would um, would uh, cut the legs under this main event. And I can tell you they accomplished that. And the main event here is the, Ring of Hon- the, the finals match of the Ring of Honor title tournament. A 60-minute Iron Man match. Low-key versus Christopher Daniels, Doug Williams, and Spanky. Low-key wins, two falls to one, although there's actually a scoring system I'll get into. But Christopher Daniels takes the lead at first. He gets a pin after the last rights in 25-31. Low-key then beats Spanky in 42-30 by submission with the Dragon Clutch. And then Loki takes the lead and never relinquishes it at 48-47 when he pins Doug Williams after a Phoenix Splash. So, before we review the match, a couple things to make note of is from the Observer, um, Spanky had already had a tour in 0-1. And the initial plans for that tour apparently was to end the tour with him losing to Hoshikawa in a match challenging for his international junior title. Zero One ended up liking Spanky so much, they put him over in the in that match and gave him the title and then booked him for the next tour that was supposed to start right around here. here. And um, Spanky actually joined the Zero One tour late so that he could work this match. And in fact, I think they said something like, Spanky has to get on like a flight early the next morning, I think they say at commentary at one point, just so he can make the Zero One tour as soon as possible, but he's staying to do this match. Christopher Daniels, likewise, is said to have had a tour in Mishinoku Pro. He was working as Curry Man, and he apparently also got permission to join that tour late so he could work this match. So one of the first examples of people prioritizing Ring of Honor at least enough to miss a few of their Japan dates to to work a, a big match here for the company. The other really big thing to note in this match that it's famous for, as we alluded to earlier, is the heat. It's commentary talks about being at least 95 degrees, if not hotter. You can see big, giant, electric, tall-necked electric fans in the crowd. If you watch closely, you can see some fans in the audience wiping, like, fanning themselves with programs or paper, whatever they had. Um, I've seen, watching U.S. indie wrestling you see a lot of matches wrestled in sweat boxes. In it, It's practically a yearly tradition in PWG now for the summer months for the fans and the commentators to talk about how hot the shows are. You know, there's a lot of shows with no air conditioning, with poor ventilation. I have never seen a match where the guys were as visibly hot and exhausted as this pro wrestling match. There are just sheets uh, of sweat on their bodies halfway through that are visible even with the shoddy 2002 video quality, everyone's visibly exhausted halfway through. It's been said that um, Doug Williams was del- almost delirious and close to passing out in the home stretch. 
everyone, including Loki, even looks just fat, horribly exhausted. Christopher Daniels has said that he felt like he needed to drink a gallon of Gatorade after the match and that everyone had lost probably five pounds each during it. Just the most exhausting match I've ever seen. Yeah, I mean, I thought when I was watching it, like, they know what it's like in the Murphy Rec Center, so it makes me feel like it was almost cruel to book an hour-long match in the middle of July at that place. Um, I mean, it definitely didn't seem to have a lot of forethought to do it that way. They put out, like, a fan in the aisleway and directed it on toward the ring, like a big industrial fan, um, which probably maybe helped a little if you were, like, knocked out on that side of the ring. But, you know, I guess, you know, they were trying. is probably the best they could do, but I can't, I can't imagine it did much. So, yeah, it was, you know, it was just very... I felt very upset for all these guys watching the match because of how miserably hot they must have been. Yeah, and I, I just... it's a, This match, before we get into what we think of it, it's a huge accomplishment, this match, because... The, you know, everyone's videotape sale and ticket sale, they're, whether it was worth it to them or not, was going to live or die with on this match. The whole show had been structured that way. There was nothing else to, for the show to really hang its hat on. You know, it's 60 minutes in the hottest conditions you can imagine. Two of the guys have to leave for tours immediately afterwards. I mean, the fact that they just did... I, I really like this match. But even if this match was just average, I think it's just an accomplishment. It didn't fall apart, you know? Yeah, I mean, uh, it was ve- it was honestly an extremely impressive undertaking. Um, I don't I know you didn't mention it yet. Maybe you're planning on getting to it later. But, like, this match had very specific rules where whoever makes a fall, whether it's a pinfall or a submission, um, gets two points. And whoever loses a fall loses a point. So minus points. And, like, I thought that was pretty ingenious for the way they planned on booking the match. And as far as I know, there's never been another match with these rules in any sort of major promotion. Do you know of any match with the four-way uh, Iron Man match with these rules? I don't think that... Uh, I don't even think they're, that, that, at least Ring of Honor, I don't think they ever go to the four-way Iron Man ever again. Well, ROH definitely never did it, but I don't think I've ever heard it in any other place, even. I don't think so either, and I'm a I'm of a bit of a different mind on the rules because in some ways I think it was clever, and on the surface it seems pretty simple. It's if you directly score a fall, you get two points. If you directly take a fall, you're you lose a point, negative points, and if you're not involved in the fall, no change. But it does get a little complicated in the sense of there's a point later in the match where. Um, you know, it's Daniels has beaten Key, so that raised him to uh, to two points, and that put Key down to negative one. And then Key scores a fall each on Williams and Spanky, so that brings him up to three points. And I mean, Spanky and Williams each have negative one. Daniels has two, but then there's a point in the match at that point where Williams and Spanky are breaking up each other's pins. And going by the math of the match, you shouldn't really do that if you're Williams or Spanky, because you want you're going to have to score a fall yourself no matter what anyway. But what but what the other guy pinning either Key or Daniels would do at that point would lower their to- those totals who you have to catch up to without raising anyone else's points to a level that you really couldn't reach. 
Like there, there becomes all these complications that maybe you can't really. It, it's hard to expect anyone to pay attention to them. Yeah, well, especially when you're that late in the match, like. If if you were talking about realism, you could argue like that the guys weren't clear on the points, you know, by that point, like you know that they just didn't know, and like you need to have like a scoreboard to really do it well that even the wrestlers themselves could see, because we know in from real sports, like you know, comp- comp- competitors in a game they look at the scoreboard, right? Because they want to mm-hmm. know what the score yeah. is. So I think you know there is some of that, but I don't know. I'm I'm actually kind of a sucker for convoluted gimmicks. Like, you know, you just find out, like, a complicated idea for a gimmick. If it comes out even reasonably well, I like it. You know, whether it's some of those Dusty Roads matches. Like, for well, War Games, obviously, is a pretty... is the most successful example of a really convoluted gimmick. But, you know, and then you get to the Elimination Chamber. It's a little bit less successful, but I still like it. And then you get to stuff like the Tower of Doom. And it's like, they never did that again, but I like that, too. I thought that was just like... You know, it's just, it's just fun to have you know, wacky ideas, because wrestling, you know, is the sort of thing that is open to all sorts of crazy things, and this is sort of like the pure wrestling version of that, right? You got four guys, you got points, you have an hour, and you can play with it a little bit, and I thought they did a decent job of put a building the drama based on the point system. Yeah, I, I wish they would have explored the ramifications a bit more, but again, I also think that would complicate things. It's also the, the, fir- also the first try at a gimmick, which is why I say... It was successful enough that I'm surprised no one's ever done it again. I, I did like when they got into – I mean you could have done this I guess with a regular Iron Man. But they did – there is a period in the middle where after Daniel scores the first fall, he gets kind of extra proactive about breaking up pins. And the commentators know you know, he, he, could, he could win this match if he just prevents any other falls from happening. So that is one of the, the interesting things you can do in a four-way Iron Man match where – you're almost in a weird position of wrestling where you don't get too often where someone is kind of playing prevent defense, you know, where he almost just wants to get the match to keep going without anything else happening, which is something you don't see in wrestling that often. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's cool. I, 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 I'm like, I was fully marking out for that idea. I, I thought it was fully cool. And let, let's note the booking of who wins is really good in the sense of, the whole thing with Daniels thus far has been low-key keeps beating him. You know, they're the biggest rivals in the company in the early stages. But Daniels always has a fresh excuse. So right, always an excuse, right, exactly. So the, the three-way main event of the first show, Key directly pins Daniels. But Daniels says, if it wasn't a three-way, I'd beat you. In fact, I could beat both of you in this match on the same night. So they do the round-robin challenge the next show. Daniels beats Dragon American Dragon clean in the first match. But then he has to wrestle a fresh key in the second match of his, of the tournament, and he loses. So he has the excuse, you know, I already wrestled once, you didn't. If I could wrestle you fresh, I wouldn't have to do it. So then we we go to this four-way Iron Man match, and he pins key c- completely clean in the first fall of the match. If it was a regular match, he would have won the title right there. And then key wins the match by getting a fall over Williams and a fall over Spanky. So you end the show, yet again, Key has beat Daniels, but yet Daniels is the guy who has the fall over Key, and Key didn't get his fall over Daniels in this match. And no one had a fall over Daniels, and Daniels was the only one that never got beaten during the match. Yeah, so in that, I would say this is one of Gabe's best early, of the, the early first half a year of Ring of Honor. This might be Gabe's finest hour in creating kind of booking like that, where he really used the steps, I think, to his advantage to create this, you know, 
Daniels is the smart guy who's also always whining and making excuses, but you can almost see his his rationale here. Like, fuck, you know, uh, I didn't get pinned and I lost the match, you know? Yeah, it's exactly, I, I thought it was really good. And, not for nothing, I thought the match was really good um, overall. Yeah, um, I was on the border of very good and great for this match. I think... Let's start off. They start off with a bunch of they. They do a measured match to start with a lot of limb work in the first five to ten minutes, and they do a good job of they really start building to around twenty minutes. And it's the first time all four guys are all in the ring at once, where they they take a break from strictly adhering to tags, which they they actually do strictly adhere to it most of the match, I would say, and then they build to a bunch of you know all four guys doing stuff, which results in the first fall. And they make a brave choice here where they they work on low key's leg early in, in the first ten minutes of the match. So I think that's a pretty brave choice to make low key, who does so many kicking things, he has to sell his leg for the rest of an hour long match. And I think he does a really good job of it actually. Yeah, it makes the match a lot more compelling because he'll start kicking with his good leg and it'll hurt too much and he'll switch to his bad leg. And like he just they they do a really good job with that. There's a my favorite part of, of that was um he does his usual Kawada quick kicks to the head at one point, but his leg hurts too much, so he switches to headbutts and kind of arm shivers. And because he's not used to throwing so many headbutts, he then like sells his head after a few of them. So I just like stuff. I thought moments like that were really good. I actually think Key. I don't know if this is Key's best performance yet in Ring of Honor. It may or may not be, but it's a performance different than every other performance so far he's done in the company. You know, he's never been called on to sell this much, this specifically. At one point after the first fall, he has to sell on the outside. You don't even see him for probably five or ten minutes. So it, it's him in a more vulnerable position than he's ever been in the company, probably. He's working more like a classic top baby face in this match. Yeah. With the selling. like Selling is like one of the biggest things that he does in this match. And usually it's his offense that makes him stand out. And he's, and he's being booked kind of like the classic face underdog for once. Apart from just always being low-key the dominant ass kicker, he's the one taking the first fall clean. He's the one with the injury. He's the one selling on the outside for 10 minutes. He's the one that has to fight from the, the score deficit where after the first fall, he has a lower score than the other three guys in the match. So the, the, he gets a very classic baby face come from behind role in this match. Yeah. Um, um, would, do you have any, maybe you should, you should, uh, shoot some thoughts about this. Well, um, I thought it was interesting, um, in the early part, uh, when, uh, Carino mentions that Spanky had been to, uh, anger management classes, because I was like, <laughs> oh man, does everybody from the Texas Wrestling Academy have to go to anger management? It seems like it's a, uh, it's a trend with those guys. Um, but, uh, I guess maybe, um, Spanky didn't have as good of a doctor as, uh, American Dragon did later on, um, <laughs> but uh, the, so, the, so it goes builds to the first big spot after all the legwork where all four guys hits their finishers and um, there's that, that's like the first big applause spot in the match like kind of maybe like like around little little past twenty minutes into the match and then right after that Key goes for the title wave on Dan, and Daniels hits a chop block and the last rights and that he gets the clean pin and so at that point it's Daniels two points Key negative one point. Zero for Williams, zero for Spanky. And after each, um, 
after each fall, the refs actually switch places, which I think is good because I was feeling really bad for the ref at the beginning of this match, you know, knowing the condition. So it was a good idea. So it went from Paul Turner to uh, uh, Sean Hansen um, after that first fall. Um, so you got um, you got Spanky. Uh, he's doing the, the like a flipping senton onto Doug Williams on Daniel's knee, and uh, Donnie B calls it a wheelbarrow flip, which I guess is a less convoluted name than uh, a uh, spinning suplex backflip splash. Um, yeah. Um, uh, Williams goes for the chaos theory a few times, um, and uh, Daniels breaks it up uh, once. Um, then uh, Daniels does the, Ko- the Koji clutch onto Williams, and what does uh, Donnie B call the Koji clutch, Trevor? The Novocaine. Like, Has his brother's Nova. Yeah, he does a Novocaine-like maneuver is what he calls it because that is not exactly the Novocaine, right? So it's it. That's just funny that he he attribute everyone's stealing from Nova even in 2002. It's not fair. Um, there's a a standing O for uh, for Williams after he like kind of does the gory special on uh, on Loki. And just like runs him back and forth into the corner a bunch of times. Crowd goes nuts for that. Williams, I thought, as was the case in the last show, looked great here. I mm-hmm. think, you know, I think I, I just think 2002 Doug Williams is awesome. What impressed me was he has so much mass, and he's clearly the first guy to get exhausted. But yet, even though he looked like he was the most exhausted guy, and again, the reports were he was close to passing out near the end. Every time he had was called upon to do his big spots, he like he sped up again and did them. And a lot of his spots involve, you know, lifting like the chaos theory suplex or the gory special or the torture device, like stretch muffler. So it really impressed me that you really see him gutting his way through exhaustion in this match, maybe more than anybody. Yeah. And you notice like every time somebody's on the ropes, like, you know, two guys are in the ring, two guys are on the apron. Whenever someone's on the apron, they are just like leaning over the ropes, like putting all their weight on the ropes. Like they cannot even stand up straight. Like, that's how tired they are. Um, and you notice that. So, really cool spot. Maybe the coolest spot of the match happens shortly thereafter. Um, where uh, Doug Williams goes for the Chaos Theory on Loki, but Spanky is standing right behind them. So, Key, like, flips over onto Spanky and turns him over into the Dragon Clutch, or the Dragon Sleeper, and Spanky taps out immediately. And that's the second fall of the match. So, it becomes um, Daniels with two. Loki with one, because he had negative one previously, and Spanky with negative one, Williams is still at zero. So, um, you know, right after that, Spanky gets back, he, he kind of gets back into it pretty quickly, he hits a spinning double underhook uh, DDT off the middle rope onto Daniels for two. Um, Williams does like a pancake spot to, pa- to Spanky, but he does like three of them in quick succession, and I thought that was awesome. At this point in the match, we're probably about like 40 minutes in, and we're kind of getting into like the moves, moves, moves part of the match, because they did a lot of actually like wrestling early on, and, mm-hmm. and, and like psychology, which I thought was cool. Um, so, um, um, the key, um, he blocks slice bread number two on Williams, um, and then Kawa- he does the Kawada kicks to Doug Williams. I think this is probably when you're talking about with the headbutts and stuff. Yeah. Um, Daniels does the BME on Doug, he gets two. And then, um, just interesting to note, 15 years later, that's the move that he wins the, the title with, uh, literally almost 15 years later. Um, uh, Key does the dragon clutch on Williams in the ropes, uh, then uh, Spanky does a slice spread on Williams 
off of Daniels, but it's broken up by Daniels. Then Daniels and Spanky fall out of the ring, and Key hits the Phoenix Splash on a prone Doug Williams, because remember, he'd already been hit with the slice bread. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's kind of a crazy Phoenix Splash, because like, he just like goes all the way around. He lands very awkwardly, but it looks even like more painful than a normal one would. And, and I'll give credit to Donnie B for once. I, I feel like he actually kind of covered for low key because he calls it like a Phoenix back senton, I think he calls it, which is actually a good cover for what looked like he maybe just over-rotated. It really could have been scary. I mean, it was a really cool sequence, and the but it, it's, a, it's a Phoenix, basically just a Phoenix splash where he, imagine if, if low key just kept rotating a little bit more and landed on the back of his shoulders and neck. Yeah, and yeah, it's pretty much exactly that. Um, but it looked cool. Like I mean, he was okay, and it looked cool. So I guess, I guess it all worked out in the end. Yeah. So Loki gets the pin with that. So now it's three Loki with three points, Daniels with two, Spanky and Williams both with negative one. Um, so then they kind of start going into the final stretch. Um, slice bread reversal into a tombstone by Loki. Daniels breaks it up. Daniels hits a burning hammer on Spanky. Um, but Spanky's in the ropes. Loki hits a 450, but but falls. Out, but then he falls out of the ring, and um, but Spanky's just been decimated right by all these moves. But then he's quickly back on offense, and I think that was like the one thing that kind of bugged me about the match. Like Spanky should be done at this point. Gets hit by a tombstone, gets hit by um, by a burning hammer, 450. And then he's he's up like hitting DDTs pretty shortly thereafter after an hour long match in hundred degrees. That was like uh, that took me out of the match a little bit. I have to say. But, one thing. Sorry, go ahead. That might. Sorry. Uh, one thing that might make you uh, sympathize with him a bit more. Something I didn't bring up about the match is in doing his research for this, I found a Christopher Daniel shoot interview, and one thing he mentioned about the match while really liking it is the final fall where. Um, where Key takes the lead, where he pins Williams with the Phoenix Splash. That fall happens about 12 minutes before the end of the match. It happens about 10 minutes too early than they had planned. Oh, my gosh. And Daniel said that they had to improvise on the fly to get back to the point of the final two or three minutes. So basically everything you see from that final fall till the final couple minutes where, you know, it's just Daniels and Key desperately, you know, Daniels desperately trying to pin Key again. That's all improvised. That that's them extending things on the fly to try and get back to what they had planned for the finish. Well, I you know that's that's that actually does make a difference. Um, obviously, um, I mean, as a fan, it shouldn't because you can only judge it based on what you're given. But it at least gives a reason, maybe why they weren't maybe thinking as tightly, uh, doing as tightly wound a story as they had done earlier. Because I'm sure they were just. I think at one point. I was watching carefully knowing that you can see Daniels talking to somebody like on the ropes or something. Like he's probably saying like, look, we just, we have to solve, we have to improvise, you know, we well, have to stretch for time. Well, they do a really good job of it because it's still yeah. exciting down the stretch and it gets to that final moment where they're selling exhaustion near the end, but I don't think they were really selling. I think they were just exhausted. And uh, <laughs> Daniels gets the dragon sleeper on Loki. And basically, Key, he's just, Key is just like holding off, holding on, holding on. And the crowd counts down to from 10. And right at the last second, Key kind of does like a snapmare to get out of it. And the clock hits zero, and Key wins the title. And I know you said you thought it was on the border of very good and great. I thought this was amazingly impressive. 
like probably the second or third best ROH match so far in 2002. I might have even liked it more than the first match. It wasn't as the, you know the main event of the first show. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't as innovative, it was, but it felt like it had a little more um, uh, kind of substance, I guess. Yeah. Um, you know, might like might have had a few more flaws, but it just it hit me harder. It felt like there was more drama, there was more at stake. Obviously, there was because it was for the title. There was more emotion, and I was really impressed with how. You know, Doug Williams just showed up and immediately made himself feel like a main eventer. And Spanky, who I've been very skeptical of in these his early ROH performances, I thought he finally comes into his own here. He finally is like, okay, he fits in with these guys. He's really good. And he was really good. And obviously Daniels and Loki continue to be awesome, um, which they had been in every performance they've had so far in ROH. So I thought it all came together beautifully. Um, I don't know, I just found it very impressive, especially considering it's 15 years later and it shouldn't hold up as well as it does, in my opinion. I think, again, I, I was, I've been really hard-pressed trying to figure out exactly where I rate this match because I really did enjoy it. But it almost depends what you want because I would put the three-way main event of the first show above this because its, it's conciseness allows it to never really have a downtime. And I think while these guys did an, a very good job of um, filling 60 minutes, especially when you consider the conditions they were in and that flub where they had to improvise 10 minutes at the end with all the rules and stuff. I think there are a few moments of bit of, of downtime where everything's where they're just passing time. And there are, there are moments where, you know, the exhaustion is visible, although in some ways that adds to the match, but I think it just matters. Do you? I think the great moments in this match are up there with the great moments of any match Ring of Honor has had so far. But it just met like again that um that Chaos Theory German into the Dragon Clutch on Spanky is a really smoothly well done, cool looking spot. One of the highlights of the company so far. It, it, I think it just depends what you want. Do you want the concise match with like no filler? Or the match that might even hit some higher highs that that you know has more ups and downs to it. I, I think there are some similarities in the sense of Christopher Daniel in both of these matches, the three-way and this match, is really supplying all the character to the match. In in the first 20 minutes of this match in particular, he's you know, he's tagging out with a punch to the face, he's he's avoiding low-key getting in the ring with Loki until Loki's on the ropes and then he's eager to get in and start beating on him. You know, he's, he's playing the character. He's injecting so much character into this match of being the crafty kind of a chicken shit asshole who's directing everything. And he's so good at that. It really brings the match together. I think my only flaw in his performance was his, his arm gets worked on a lot and he really doesn't sell it other than the exact moment it's getting worked on. And when you put that right next to Loki's performance, where I think Loki does an excellent job, for the most part, of selling his leg, and Daniels gets his arm worked on just as much and doesn't really go far with it at all, that looks a little bad. But no, I think this is a very good match, and I almost want to say it's great. I don't even know what I'm going to put on my review of this, but... Uh, uh, and just going to your thing about Spanky, 
I, again, Spanky is a guy, I don't think he maybe has quite the highlights of the other three, but this is a performance where he fits in with three guys with more, way more experience, you know, and, than them. He cuts out all the comedy stuff and takes it really seriously. And, and I, I think it's a really impressive performance from him too, just to be able to match those guys and not look like he's a step behind. Yeah, I mean, I think even does, even though that we, you know, you say the match is great. Um, I mean, or very good, I should say. Yeah. I still feel like this is one of the biggest gulfs we've had in terms of our opinions on a match. Because you say it's on the border of very good and great. I think it's like way beyond great to the point of being like an actual classic match. Um, so it's interesting, just you know, the differences in how we kind of see the see the match. Yeah, I think it's just in the way we value it in some ways. Um, but we can both agree that the the individual performances were very impressive in terms of what they had to do, and it was considering it was the first time they had to do anything like that, and how well they ended up doing it. And I even I love the finish too because the finish is um, you know, Daniels puts Key in the Dragon Clutch, which is Key's own submission finisher, and that's such a that's such a, a, a cliche of in big matches we're going to trade finishers, but it felt like they had really earned it because the last show ended with Key refusing to let go of the Dragon Clutch, and the Dragon Clutch I think is how Key beat Daniels in in the second show in Round Robin Challenge. So it really made it feel full, like everything was coming full circle where finally I've got you you know you asshole in this move you've tortured me with, but you know Key being the babyface he survives it when Daniels couldn't. And, you know, so, and it, was a, it was a great way to make a really cool, fitting finish without having to have a fall in the final minute, I felt like. Yeah, I, I mean, they, 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 they threw in a lot of nuances here. Like, that's another thing that impresses me so much about the match. Like, it wasn't, this was not just like an indie, like, guys doing their spots. Like, they were, this was a carefully booked match. I don't know who was mostly responsible for that. If it was Gabe, or if it was Daniels, or the wrestlers, or whatever, but I, I've, I just am very impressed with how this whole deal came together. And one other thing to note about this match is another thing from that Christopher Daniels shoot interview is he said that um he he said that Gabe had called and asked him he said do you think we should do this match for forty five minutes or for sixty and Daniels said that sixty would be way more impressive than forty five and I think in some ways you maybe the match as a wrestling match might have been even a little bit better if it was 45 minutes because less exhaustion, you can cut out a little bit of filler. But I think Daniels absolutely made the right call by saying 60 minutes. I think this match is much more memorable because it's 60 minutes. I think there's the big round number of one hour is way better than 45 minutes, which seems more arbitrary. So even though, like you were saying early, it was probably a horrible kind of a thoughtless idea to book a 60-minute match in the Murphy Rec Center in July. It, it was the right move. If you're going to do a long match, make it a full hour. And so good on Daniels there for, for standing up for the idea of going 60 here. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I did not know about that. And in fact, at Final Battle, they would go to do a 45-minute match. And obviously, this isn't the only reason, but that match is not as remembered as this one, you know? <laughs> Yeah, and I think, um, yeah, well, we'll, we'll have plenty to say about that match when it happens. But both presentations came off very differently between those two matches. Yeah, so that's, let's just see, um, my notes disappeared for a second. 
So the match ends, and um, yeah, they immediately, I, did, did they do the match of the year chant after the first ROH main event? Because I don't remember hearing a match of the year chant, but they definitely did one here. I think they did match of the year and the first show, but this is also one of the first ROH and not Ring of Honor chants, I think. You know, they're chanting ROH and not Ring of Honor. And I, I should note, that's actually a good reminder, the crowd is standing on their feet in the final minute or two, at yeah. least. And th- they have to be exhausted, too, because, you know, they're being subjected to the heat as well. And they get really, th- they are really appreciative of this last couple minutes. They're, they're aware that they're seeing something really cool. Yeah, really special, I would say. And they start chanting um, after the match. I haven't heard this chant in a while. Thank you, fellas, is what it sounded like they were saying. <laughs> Which is almost sounds like a chant like that would come later, like the both these guys chants that would come in the in the in the 2010s, I guess you'd call them. Um, so yeah, so it's there. It was a huge love fest, I would say. I, I um, I just it, w- it was a really cool moment. One thing I want to get to before I go into what happens at the end of the show is, for those who don't know. Matt has a segment that he hasn't had a m- much chance to do much of, but he will later on, where he thinks the Jade Driller has been kicked out of more than most other finishers on the Indies, so he's going to keep a count of how many times the Jade Driller, Driller gets kicked out of. Just one so I'm, far. We'll see if my thesis is true. I'm starting my own segment based on past shows, which is I read Dave Meltzer comments where he praises a Ring of Honor show, but then kind of has to undercut them and drive Matt crazy with it. So this is this week's installment, where um, this is this is a quote from uh, Dave watching the show. He really enjoyed the main event and praised it. But um, let me see if I can find the right quote here. Oh, Dave also thought this match would have been better at 30 minutes, which again I think is missing kind of the point of I don't think it'd be as remembered if it wasn't 60. But yeah, it'd be more all action, but that not yeah. not the point. Yeah. I think it's part of the story of this match, is 60. But here's a Dave quote, which is, um, let me just see here. There is a totally different level of, uh, bear in mind, he, he reviewed this match and really liked it. But then he writes, there is a totally different level of great workers as these guys, who are the kind of indie workers and great workers like Angle, Benoit, or Guerrero, who are so much more polished, they are in a completely different league. These guys, because they aren't working as tough a schedule grind, can do more in a match, and for those into seeing new moves and ideas, they've got it. And this is a pretty unfair quote from Dave, because especially consider Spanky and Daniels have to get on planes right after this match to go to Japan. They're wrestling in 95-degree heat, and to be like, oh, well, they can do more in this match because they're indie guys. Like, this is the wrong match to give that criticism for. Yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, Dave sometimes goes back to this whole, like, attitude, but he does get better about it, you know? He when, does. Yeah, but it is it is weird that he ha- that he always needs to be like, yeah, but they're good, but it's not like they're WWE good. No. They're not Damon good. <laughs> That's a deep, deep cut that only a few people will ever get. If you do, I'll send you like the Marvel no prize of a empty envelope. Nice. But after the match, uh, everyone shakes hands except Daniels who teases it and yet again leaves without giving the handshake. I'll note that in ROH's history of pushing the handshake, sometimes the crowd didn't seem to care. Sometimes they did care. I would say this has to be maybe the high point of them caring because when Daniels teases the handshake, 
even as exhausted as the crowd is, they start aloud shake his hand chant. Like, they really want to see Daniels give these guys respect after this. And this is probably as much as they've ever wanted to see a handshake, I would say. Yeah, see, this match worked really well. Yeah. And after that, Loki celebrates, and they do an extended period of him posing with the title, all four sides of the ring, all four corners. At one point, he starts to break down a little bit, but then he gets himself together. Just a big, long celebration, which I always like when a guy wins a title. Yeah, it's what you need. And, yeah. And as Loki is leaving, guess who stops him to shake his hand? Did you notice? Oh, who was it? Mr. Frank Talent. Oh, God. He was wearing a I t-shirt because it was so hot in there. He didn't have his trademark blue suit. So that That's how, why I missed him. Yeah. But then the camera follows Loki through the curtain, and immediately... It looks like Rob Feinstein, Gabe Sapolsky, and his friends, the Hit Squad, are waiting for them among the other people. And immediately, when Key gets through the curtain, he drops to his knees. They start giving him water. He looks just completely exhausted. And he starts breaking down emotionally. He starts heaving, sobbing. We can see his back bopping up and down. Yeah, and, and you know, when I was seeing this, I was like, I wonder what it is that's really made him so emotional. And then we find out in a few minutes. Um, yeah, he... Um, they, um, you can see Gabe tap him on the shoulder and tell him that he's the man. Yeah. Gabe then tells everyone to kind of clear out, except for the hit squad and let him, and the camera guy and let him be. And this is as emotional as I've ever seen Key ever be. He's he's sobbing, and we see him turn around. They point, they tell him the mic's behind him, and he tells us he wrestled that match to uh, show how much love he has for his art. And then he says it's for Russ Haas. And that's a wrestler who had worked in JPW and other places, and he had died, I think, about six months before. And he says that was for Russ, and that, you know, he, he refers to Russ as a brother, like a brother to him. And Key is just so rawly emotional in this. Then he also says, you know, Charlie, which was Russ's brother who also wrestled, Charlie Haas, you know, whenever you see this, this is for you too. And it, it's interesting, something I've... I've discovered in this ROH rewatch is there are two really naked, vulnerable moments in wrestling. You don't see vulnerability much in wrestling. You know, between the, the Eddie Guerrero promo at the end of Night of Appreciation and Loki here, it's pretty crazy that in Ring of Honor, which isn't really... You wouldn't expect Ring of Honor to be the company that would have this, but in the first five shows, two of the most naked, kind of emotional, stirring kind of moments I've seen in wrestling... Um, yeah, I mean, I guess part of it's maybe the indie wrestling thing. They let their guard down a little bit because it's not this, like, polished production that you get in WWE. And a lot of it might just be coincidence, the timing of when all these things happened. Yeah, and, and you know, for people that have never seen – I mean, this is a side of, of low-key I think most people have never seen. I mean, I don't recall him ever being like this ever otherwise. And he drinks some water and he lets us know that – for us watching at home, we have no idea how hot that building was. Yeah, he chugs, that, like, several bottles of water. Yeah, and, he, you know, he talks about how we're lucky to be at home with AC and, you know. And then Monster Mac, it, it's something that would seem silly in other ways, other sh- other guys on other shows, but I think it's earned here. Monster Mac basically, because Loki is still selling his leg, Monster Mac basically piggybacks Loki out of the shot. He carries like, him downstairs, yeah. Yeah, carries him on his back out. And other other times that might seem silly, but here, I mean, I think it just sells how exhausting the match was, and it sells the injury. And it's a nice little moment of, you know, 
Key's friend, you know, is taking Key, you know, he's just spent, he's given everything. He's just emotionally drained and physically drained and beaten. And that's how we leave Key on the show. Yeah, um, like I said about Spanky's promo before, like that that made him seem more like a person and like likable. This is definitely that for Loki. He seems more like a person than I've ever seen him. And pretty likable, pretty genuine. Yeah. And yeah, this this whole show, but between how they made that match, how they booked that match, like we talked earlier, and this promo, is the most sympathetic and kind of traditional babyface Loki's ever been. Where he, he's not just the invincible, hard hitting guy. And after that, we get a couple more segments to take us out. Um, we have an angry Jay Briscoe backstage being all pissed at Mark. And this time, he challenges Mark to a match in Boston, which actually it's Wakefield, Massachusetts, but they refer to it as Boston. Because in Massachusetts, the Athletic Commission will allow a 17-year-old Mark to wrestle. No, there is no Athletic Commission in oh, Massachusetts. That's even even better. Even better. So we're going to get that match. And then the final segment on the show, how we close, is Simply Luscious is talking to an exhausted Christopher Daniels, trying to calm him down. Uh, Ref Paul Turner walks by, and Daniels grabs him, pushes him against the wall, cuts a pretty good angry promo, bringing up how he pinned Key and never got pinned, so how could he have lost? How could he not be the champion? And Daniels just cuts this angry promo where... He basically reestablishes again that this isn't the end. This is the beginning of this is this is the beginning of the end, but not the end. That you know he will destroy Ring of Honor and all that stuff. And we get the two B continued graphic, and that's how we end the show. Yeah, I do want to think you underplay the in the uh, the Briscoe segment just how bad of an actor Mark is at this point. You know, a seventeen year old <laughs> kid. He's just like because you know Mark is like very stone faced. He's like, why are you always making fun of me? And Mark is like, oh, you lost. And then. Um, <laughs> And then Jay is like, well, I want, I'm going to challenge you to a match in Boston. And Mark is just like, oh, you'll just lose again. And like, just like completely expressionless. And that was uh, Mark's acting. I could kind of get into it as Mark just being the typical mopey teenager that doesn't have emotion for anything. Like he's just a, a smart, I mean, I think it was bad acting, but I yeah. could kind of imagine it as the guy who was just the smart ass teenager that just never gets up for anything. But yeah, it's amazing how how much they transform in terms of charisma. Yeah, I mean, they had a lot of time to learn it, so I guess it would be weird if they didn't, but but you're right. Yeah, they are they become completely different people pretty quickly. So that's the end of the show and it's weird. So this is very much I think a throwback to the first two shows as weird as it is to say that something is a throwback it's only five shows in because we saw on the last show road to the title we felt like you know that tournament forced them to cut out a lot of the filler have more serious matches this is very much the first two shows there's a lot of there's some goofiness almost everything on the undercard is short nothing stands out too much apart from one or two things and everything is built around one big match in the main event to kind of to, to justify your purchase. And I guess the difference here is that one big match is 60 minutes long. So you're getting one third of the show to justify your purchase. 
And also, and, and also, I will say that Bunkhouse match is probably more memorable as a match than most of the matches on the first two ROH shows besides the main events. Yeah. Whether or not you like that match, again, it's going to be a matter of personal taste, but it definitely stands out in early Ring of Honor history as being completely different, going to a different level of brutality. So for recommending this show, I'm not going to recommend it, even though I think some people will really like the Bunkhouse match, but the reason I'm not recommending this show is because, as Matt mentioned on the last show, this main event is for free on YouTube through ROH's official YouTube account. So the one match that's really worth seeing is for free. So at that point, I'm going to just tell you, go out of your way and watch this main event. But you do not need to go buy a DVD for it. Literally, you do not need to pay money to see this match. Correct. It's very. It's the most convenient it could possibly be. So, yeah, I recommend it. If you like ROH at all, you should watch this match. Uh, any other thoughts, Matt? No, it, you know, it's like, I, you know, I'm looking forward to when ROH finally gets out of the pattern of having these, like, these completely disposable undercards that feel like they're just, like, a bunch of raw matches. You know, like, I, I just, I'm looking forward to when they actually, like, get some, you know, put on some, like, real good shows on a regular basis. Um, but we're not there yet. No. Although, the next show we will review is Honor Invades Boston, which will be the first Ring of Honor show that the company ever does outside of Philly and the Murphy Rec Center. And we will see Jay versus Mark Briscoe. We'll see Michael Shane versus Paul London. And we'll see the rematch between Low Key and AJ Styles. So, there's some stuff to look forward to. And it's time to give a few plugs. If you want to contact us, you can contact, contact us at through the years at gmail.com. Again, remember through is spelled T H R O H. You can contact us at our Twitters, which is I'm at Trevor Dame. Matt is at Mayor MGF. Uh, we post on the Pro Wrestling Only, we have a thread for the show on the Pro Wrestling Only Message Boards podcast section. We also have threads at F4W Online, Voices of Wrestling, so places you can reach out to us. There's just too many ways to get into contact with us. Um, just contact us once at all of them. And yes. I promise, once, and I promise that Trevor will respond to you. Yes, I, I try and respond. Matt has a life. I don't, so I can take up a bit more of the slack. And check it out again. Definitely true. I will fight you. Um, check out some other of the great pro place to be nation pro wrestling only podcast because i'm telling you there's a lot of good ones in the feed including if you want a show that does this but for wcw there's where the big boys play and i know they did the ecw rewatch series for a time on uh stephen grant's pro wrestling stephen pro, pro wrestling super show yes yeah so um until next time on the pro wrestling only place to be nation feed this is matt and trevor uh goodbye everybody thanks